This is Small Changes, Stark Reality on jasoncharles.net. party people hope uh everyone's hanging in relatively speaking we got another episode of stark reality for you with myself jim Deere, small change whatever you remember this time rolling out the red carpet to kevin nutt who is uh all the way in mobile alabama and has been doing an excellent show on wfmu Freeform station that I also do a show on. His show is called Sinner's Crossroads and is just an unbelievably amazing gospel themed show. A lot of vintage stuff. Though Kevin also does a regular night locally at the spot Leroy Lounge, plays a lot of different music. And we get we talked for quite a bit, talked about taking requests and playing favorites. Getting pigeonholed musically, rare records and purism, annoying NPR liberalism, Spotify algorithms. We talk about race and class, coastal attitudes on the South, typical stereotypes, um, changing academic theories on the relation of the blues with early minstrel shows, liberation theology in El Salvador. CIA propaganda, and even pro-union gospel songs from Bessemer, Alabama in the 20s and 30s where there was a a recent drive for unionization in Amazon Warehouse there. Uh, He's the man. Big fan of Kevin. We talked, like I said, for a while, a couple hours, and he gave us two short mixes, an excerpt of some tracks that he plays on his gospel show, and then a little bit of a recording from Leroy Lounge, where he plays every Friday night for some years now. Kevin Nutt of Sinner's Crossroads fame here on Stark Reality. see if I got the right microphone. Here we are. Now, how about that? Does mm-hmm. that sound a little better? Way the fuck better. <laughs> okay, good. That went, that, I, I'm sorry. I was at the Zoom mic to my uh, to my Ben-ass MXL. Great, great. I, man, I li- listen to NPR and shit, and um, you hear, obviously got little push-and-play Fisher-Price microphones. These, like, NPR guys, you really? know? Yeah, really? Yeah, so it sounds like shit. I don't know. Someone was talking about some movie. I forget. Liam Nielsen was in some, you know, 
Titans gladiator type movie, but he's like, yeah. they spent like two hundred million on special effects, and Liam Nielsen's got some three dollar beer. <laughs> Sometimes these people miss the mark. I guess I don't know. That's like um, they spent so much money on the special effects with the uh, with the apes and Planet of the Apes that that after the spaceship crashes on Planet of the Apes, there's like fifteen minutes of them walking through the desert. You know. Because it's so cheap. Oh, you know, okay. You can, you know, <laughs> and then, and then the big, the big, uh, the plot tension is when this huge boulder comes out of nowhere. It's this big paper mache cardboard boulder that comes rolling down a hill. That's like for some, fifteen some minutes. Indiana Jones shit or whatever. Yeah, yeah, and it's totally, it's totally fake. And then also, uh, the scene I love is, uh, you know, before they go into, uh, you know, suspended animation or whatever in the spaceship. Charlton Heston is smoking a big old cigar. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah, light yeah. up that cigar in you his know, exactly. 70s, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Anyways, Kevin Nutt, how the hell are you, man? Hanging in there? It's a Friday afternoon. That's right. It's uh, Friday. Get, are you about to go DJ? Yeah, man. Uh, uh, nine o'clock tonight at Leroy. And, uh, uh, man, I just love it. I love it. Saves, I mean, I mean uh, it saved my life, you know. And and that's you've uh, been doing it for years now, uh, nine, uh, 2014. That's amazing. And that's like yeah. every Friday night, or is every a... Friday night nine until twelve thirty ish. Now, how have they have they been closed for like the lockdown and all that stuff, or how has that been? When when Leroy like uh, incorporated as a bar, uh, the guy just behind uh, uh, Jeremy and Tyler told me this the that uh, the guy downtown at the business permit office or whatever just sort of said to himself, oh, you know, for $10 more, you could get a package store license, you know? And so Tyler and Jeremy were like, yeah, give us a package store license. Just kind of, you know, so get a Leroy bar and package store, you know? Well, yeah, because well, so I guess that's where you can like buy beer to go when the liquor stores are closed, right? Right, right. So they suspended all that during COVID, but Leroy had this package store license and, uh, uh, so they were able to convert to a package store and they created all these uh, cocktail to go packages. And so I actually went down there on Friday and Saturdays. They closed at eight o'clock. So I went down there on Friday and Saturdays for four to eight and just to keep playing and keep my sanity. Was, with, there was one person behind the counter and I was over in the corner with my turntables playing for the two or three people coming in at one time. Well, that's hilarious. That's oh, amazing. Yeah, I loved it. That's I loved amazing. it, man. That's amazing. I loved it. Yeah, well, I mean, that's the thing is, like, DJing can kind of, like, you know, just sitting and being able to listen to, you know, records you love for, you know, several hours and, you know, in a vibe and sharing it. It is kind of, uh, it's therapy in a way, you know? Oh, it's totally, totally, absolutely, man. Yeah. You know? Even I, when some someone asks me to play an Otis Redding record after I've played four Otis Redding records, I'd say, <laughs> I, <laughs> I say I just played four Otis's. You know, Otis, don't you know Otis? Yeah, this is, th this is therapy for me, man. Well, you the know? thing is, is that I think you know, and I, and I know like DJs sometimes they get tired of those requests, or even like the classic stuff back in the day when people would actually request James Brown. It would be like. You know, you'd be playing James Brown, but it'd be maybe a more obscure side. Yeah. And then people would come up and be like, do you have any James Brown, you know? <laughs> and the comment, you know, it's like, of course, you're it's playing at the moment. But I think 
the thing is, is that it triggers something where it's like, wow, this really sounds like James Brown. I want to hear James Brown. But then, of course, it takes a certain personality yeah. to immediately be like, I got to tell the DJ to play that, which then becomes kind of yeah. comedy because it's like, are you even listening? Probably not, but it's it's uh, fine. I think their heart's in the right place. I mean, now I'd be happy is. to get have that happen. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. We would mock that back in the day, but I'm like, wow, you request James Brown. That's amazing. Well, and that's what I tell myself. You never know. Somebody might be having a bad day and they look like they're angry, but they're angry with their bad day and don't take it at face value, you know? And and then you can, oh, I didn't bring it, you know, or uh, that's a great record, man. I love that record, but I didn't bring it maybe next week, you know? That's pretty and, good. Uh, I, I would get uh, annoyed sometimes, but then because the weekends you do have really obnoxious people, so sometimes I'm just like, eh, you know, it's part of the gig, I guess, you know. <laughs> yeah, well, I've I've never had an issue at all at all. Uh, but, but you're kind of playing. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of like a vibing night. It's not like you have to play yes. anything really commercial. So I think right. it kind of like sets a certain tone when you have like a good spot like that. And then it's like people kind of come in, and it's almost like okay. This isn't going to be like where we're going to hear everything that we hear on the radio. So right. it kind yes. of sets that at the very start. So it sort of shuts down some of those conversations. And one thing I did early on is uh, it's it's such a great place, man, I, that uh, I paid very close attention to what favorite records the regulars liked. So I dropped that in. You got to come up for air every now and then, you know. Oh, absolutely. And, I, and I'll play I'll pl- like this one guy. Uh, he loves looking glasses brandy there which i go. bought when i bought i bought when it first came out i still had the original the 45 i bought when it first came out oh that's and pretty like, funny that's yeah, hilarious like, yeah hell yeah i'll play that record man it's a great record and uh uh and so you get the regulars behind you you know and uh especially also oh, happened this past uh this past friday night there's a guy who loves bobby womack but he always wants to hear across 103rd street and he could remember street, you mean 110 street. Yeah. 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 I, I used to live at 103rd street. And, uh, <laughs> uh, so, um, uh, he could remember, he could remember the song he always requests, but he said, how about some Bobby Walmart, Kevin? Uh, you know? And, uh, I was like, I had it, it just happened to have it ready, you know, and I threw it on there and he was like, he was so damn happy. He tried to buy me a drink, but I didn't need another one, man. Yeah. See, sometimes, no. uh, bartenders, they're trying to be your friend, but they're actually not. I've definitely worked places oh, yeah. where, uh, you know, you're kind of rolling out of there like, holy shit. <laughs> Yeah. You all destroyed me, you know? I mean, yeah. so sometimes I do, like, the drink and then water or sort of, like, you know, a little, yeah. like, grapefruit juice and seltzer or something. Oh, so great, you, grapefruit juice. Well, I'm great. saying, you know, you just balance it so that at least, because they'll just keep handing you drinks. And especially if you're at a spot where they make good drinks, then, well, this isn't yeah. liquor. This is lemonade. This is really good. Yeah. And you're playing your favorite records. And then next thing you know, you're yeah. just, you know, wasted. <laughs> Dude, man. Which if playing I, records wasted is good, but then, you know, ongoing, it's not necessarily a great look. You uh, got to bal- balance it. <laughs> they have so many good bourbons there. Yes, and exactly. If I, exactly. And if I if I have one bourbon, is all it takes, man. I drink it neat, and they have just this – lately uh, – well, the last time I did, it's been a while. This Colorado. Oh, Colorado is the shit. You're talking about the man, Colorado, the whiskey yeah, that is called yeah. Colorado, but it's yes, oh, I had that oh, at Burning Man at a oh, camp from Colorado that really set up a whiskey bar, like a whiskey they scotch make bar. Killer whiskey, man. Yeah, that is a great bottle. Yeah. I haven't had that in a while, but so I got turned on at this camp. 
you know that's cool yeah no wow. but colorado yeah i was like really but it was actually it's really good yeah that's so this this is like when you were a kid i mean no, i'm just kidding <laughs> <laughs> but i get Two obnoxious back, i no. get i get obnoxious on bourbon <laughs> and then if i get angry or if i get annoyed i can't go back to being not annoyed I stay at the annoyed level. Yeah, that liquor yeah. has that effect. You I can't. Know. I can't. You can. You can't. Can. It, it can bring out that sort of that demon. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and 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 uh, oh man, I I I can be uh, I I'm proud of my gift for uh um, caustic cut downs. You know. <laughs> That's that's I'm, what the that's what the side of Kevin not that because you're you're oh, yeah. you know you're a very nice guy my my, yeah. my runnings into you over the years and obviously oh, yeah. you're very chill on the radio uh, you know here's another uh, rare forties gospel side but yeah. where's the drunk on bourbon Kevin and you made the wrong request you can that's see that. <laughs> you can see him man you know. Yeah. So. Uh, oh man. But actually, uh, you know, that was sort of like related to. Uh, I was trying to jot down some questions here, be all professional and chip. But one of the things I was thinking about was the concept of sharing music. That you know, you get into collecting music, and then you just have all this crazy shit, and you're like, oh, I really want to. Yeah. Other people should hear this. You yeah. Know? And I was kind of going to talk about it with in relation to Case Quarter. You know. The, yeah. Uh, reissue label but i mean yeah. djing is also in the, the same vein you know that you acquire all this music over the years you had you know we all have like stacks yeah. of it and at a certain point you're like you know other people should hear it you know yeah well that's the that's the impetus man that's that's the the prime directive you know there are there are collectors who like to sit on it and uh but they don't have any friends you know i mean you have a you have a rare record two copies but you're only able to like show it off for for every once every four years i mean what and even showing it off that's just so ephemeral man i mean yeah it just... i think it's kind of more like the stamp collecting nerd side yeah. of it as opposed to you wait know. that's totally different man no, just... <laughs> <laughs> no i mean that. you know i mean it's all good to have like those grail pieces and and it's nice oh, yeah. to find all that stuff but yeah i yeah. mean i think djing and then obviously you know You've been running that. How, how many releases has Case Quarter put out? We've done. I mean, if you consider uh, the very quiet uh, re, um, reissue of the Charlie Jackson record in 2018 that has like, I think, three extra songs. Yeah, you added some sides to it. Yeah. Right? And also. And also, remastered it, right? You remember? No, we, we very quiet. Yeah, we did. But what we did is we very quietly used Tim Warren's uh, transfers. And I mean,. I think Tim Warren, man, is the best. Yeah, I think we were talking oh, about that when I had yeah. you on the show. Yeah, no, he is he is the dude. Because he did the, a bunch of Norton stuff, too, I think, right? Those Back from the Grave series, and man. Matt, well, yeah, I mean, Strip Records, all the Las yeah. Vegas grind, Back from the yeah, Grave, yeah. exactly. He, no, he's he did, like, he's a total nutter, that guy. He does, he and he does, you know, he does a lot of those African comps. Did you know that? Yeah. He hates he hates the music, but he does it a magnificent job, man. He leaves everything in. There, and and so you can like it. It's uh, uh, he he doesn't try to take anything away. You take it a little bit off the top, and you lo you lose all the space. Right. You know, right. You, right. And uh, and uh, that and once you start hearing that on a record, you hear it all the time. It sounds so muddy, and and uh, he just he knows what he's doing, man. And uh, 
Yeah, it's um, something. Well, it's again because, and I think we were talking about this before on my show a while back, but it was like the concept of like, you know, you're collecting and you like this record many for, you know, not all the time, but for many reasons because it's raw and it's, you know, yeah. and so then to kind of like, you know, remaster it by cleaning it up too much. It's almost like you've scrubbed all the, the good gritty parts off and it's a little yeah. too clean, you know, oh. it's not really represent. And I think because no. Tim Warren is a collector himself and collects all these gritty, crazy point. records, then he understands that sound as opposed to yeah, maybe someone point. who's like a total pro remastering person, but then wants to make it sound like, uh, you know, some sort of like, prog rock overproduced record or something you know they don't really get the gist of like you know again total the back from the grave series it's just yeah, like raw garage shit you know oh man there's no distortion i mean you can uh you can play those records and just pump it all the way up and there's no if there's any distortion it's coming off the original record yeah exactly that, that, that's what i that mean he, yeah exactly. yeah and total pro of course means total lack of taste in music you know at the same time <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, I mean, a relative you know, taste. A relative guys, taste. No, that's in my experience, you know. <laughs> the, the, you walk into somebody's uh, apartment and they've got, you know, those glowing uh, amplifiers with the tubes out, you know. Oh, like the Macintosh shit or something. Yeah, and I'm like, oh, God, I don't want to listen to Yanni and Billy Joel all night. Yeah, yeah, man. they got yeah. like a half-speed master of uh, yeah. you know, glass houses or something. Yeah, like, or, or uh, <laughs> Sergeant Pepper the movie. You oh, know? yeah. yeah. <laughs> half-speed like, master. Oh, yeah. I'm like, <laughs> that's right. I, I paid I $300 see... for this, uh, you know, later Pink Floyd record or whatever. Yeah, I, I, I want to see a house like this man with just all this shit you know and <laughs> just scattered everywhere you know or like uh, uh, uh like your setup there man i, I could just see oh this is good this yeah is good. yeah you know basement uh, studio you know just yeah. kind of trying to roll through these times you know oh man i know it's yeah, just it's crazy i mean uh well what's what is the status in uh in, in alabama these days because you know obviously and this is something i want to talk about a little bit too just yeah. as a whole is the concept of uh the South from someone who lives there as opposed to this kind of media portrayal of it or coastal elites kind of generalizations of, uh, you know, what it is actually down there. I mean, did you, you grew up in Alabama, right? Or Yeah, man. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a very complex, um, you know, people, people, um, you know, when I lived in New York city for eight years in the nineties, I went to Hunter college, um, and so, um, uh, you know, on, on, um, um, the South functions for a lot of people, um, you know, as, um, uh, we take the racist, um, the racist kicks for the rest of the nation, you know. That's the, the most racist people I know are not Southerners. Well, yeah, I mean, Donald you know, Trump, you know. Giuliani, I mean, those, oh, yeah. those, those, both those bitches are from Queens, you know what I'm well, saying? Well, they can say, New Yorkers, you know what I'm saying? So yeah. we all have our races get your, everywhere. Get your knees, get your knees behind your ears, bitch. Oh, well, <laughs> you know? you know, I'm just saying. Like, I'm sorry. No. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, well, you know. um, and people don't want to hear it. People, um, hey, man, there were, there were, uh, uh, no, no, uh, you know, whites only signs all, all through non-Southern states, you know, uh, whites only blacks. It, 
uh, uh, Brooklyn Dodgers were desegregated in 1947, man. Yeah. I mean, where did the blacks sit in Dodger Stadium, man? How did they know that they can't mingle with the whites? Where are those signs? You know, all that stuff is associated with the South, you know, and uh, uh, a lot of um, non-Southerners get really pissed off, especially if it's a Southerner saying, look, you know, we're like the person guilty of murder, but when, but you see the criminal can see the hypocrisy of the system, you know, and so we can see the hypocrisy of, of the racism of, of everyone else, you know, and uh, uh, what if what if a bunch of redneck Southerners got in a bus and landed in downtown New York, man, and started like saying, hey, or Boston, you know, uh, Chicago, uh, these kids have got to start going to your school, man, which happened in Boston in 72, man. I mean, I Boston, mean, Boston is bedlam. <laughs> bedlam, yeah. man. Yeah, there were some no. pictures of that. I remember seeing some crazy shit, man. Well, you know, the iconic one was the guy with the American, the American flag. flag. Exactly. Yeah, That's like the one I was thinking of. Stabbing this guy. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, exactly. But um, I think uh, that's kind of heavy to say that right off the bat, but um. I think most people uh, who say things are uh, once you start, they might say something superficial at the beginning of a conversation. But after a while, you realize that they they have a a much more complex and appreciative view of the South. Uh, And, you know, because then you start talking about all the literature that came out of the South, all the music that came out of the South that continues to come out of the South. Yeah, that's true. The the cultural matrix uh, that made you know, all this music in 1900 and 1920 is still at work. You know, it's still at work. Why, why do you have, uh, you know, we knew about this. Uh, why do you have uh, all these uh, second and third generation great migration families sending their kids, you know, all in the 60s and 70s to go back south for the summer, man? Spike Lee used to come every summer, used to come down to a, a little town just this side of Mobile, um, Snow Hill, because that sort of southern vibe and family and um see i was i wasn't i wasn't even aware of that yeah 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 he talks about i heard it uh uh it was a um a terry gross interview where he, he talked about it at length but he's mentioned it in other places you know and uh we have a historically black, co- black college here in town alabama state and i, I don't know maybe 25 percent of the people that are from uh detroit chicago baltimore uh, uh, upstate New York, Rochester, um, you know, places that had that were uh, ending points on on the Great Migration. Their families and grandmothers want them to wanted to, want them to go south to go to college, you know, to just have it have like a connection, right. Right, yeah. right. And I wasn't yeah, trying but, to be facetious in terms of like, no, I didn't take it's, it no I'm just saying like the concept that uh, though there is those stereotypes and it's kind of corny, you know, and I, I mean, it is. I know like, you know, just at least a lot of like activists and people I follow on Twitter, like punch holes with that shit all the time because it's yeah. like, yeah, exactly. Like, you know, as we were saying, like there's plenty of racists everywhere. So it becomes like this corny thing yeah. that it's like oh okay the south is the dukes of hazard and it's cooter in a garage or something and it, it's still kind of floated out there in a way you know which is kind of crazy you know as the Wait, years go on dukes of hazard wasn't real 
man. So, that was just <laughs> no, I'm just saying that the Shit, image. I thought the, that was real. I was saying the, Im- <laughs> the images, though. You know what I'm saying. You yeah. And it's kind of like, yeah, it just kind of gets corny. It's almost like, oh, everyone from, from New York well, is working in a pizza shop and is Italian or something. It just, yeah. it kind of get. but I think for the South, yeah, it still yeah, kind of yeah. carries because the media and a lot of politics, you know, it's all, they're yep. kind of coastal elites. I mean, you know, and I grew up in LA and, you know, been living in New York for many years. I mean, I'm not trying to carry the same stuff. I'm just saying, like, yeah. that's the impression because, you know, I've been down yeah. to, like, New Orleans and some places, but I haven't spent a ton of time in the South. So, you know, and well, as, you know, as my politics have kind of moved more and more left, you know, that's another thing that I think with these kind of stereotypes is unfortunate is because people then kind of like downplay what I think is the potential for the South. Like, I think yeah. there's, a, yeah. there's a lot, you know, I mean, obviously, what were they saying? Like, Georgia kind of turned purple this last election. But I think there's a lot more progressive people down there than people, you know, yes. give credit yes. for. That's it's a very long way of me saying that. No, no, I, I think you're, t- you're totally right. And, and the progressive people in the South are some of the coolest people anywhere. You know, not speaking, I mean, not to blow my own horn. <laughs> You know, because, you know, we have the stereotype to work against. And, um, uh, you know, they got Trey Crowder, the liberal redneck. No, I'm not sure. I know. Yeah. Yeah. I'll send you a link or two. He's pretty interesting, but he, he's fair. He's into organizing now. Right. He's like, why, why doesn't the Democratic Party come and, and organize in rural areas in the South? So he started these town meetings in Tennessee where he's from. And he goes, hey, you know, look, man, uh, we tell them we want good education for your kids and we want Meemaw and Aunt uh, Uncle Tommy to have their meds, you know, and they relate to it, you know. And, uh, um, man, if we could if we could turn if we could turn the, the white working class of the South, man, you're talking about Republican assholes shitting bricks. I mean, it would be. You know, it can be done. It can be done, man. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, uh, most people don't want to die. So the whole concept of yeah. even just health care. <clears throat> but I mean, you know, then we're kind of entrenched in that system where it's like, you know, I forget the, yeah. the person who said this quote, but it's like, you know, America has one party, but it's obnoxious enough to, to have two versions of the same party. So it's just the, yeah. Yeah. The concept that, you know, basically. <clears throat> you're still going to have a corporate party so that even if you, you know, cause there was that whole thing with, with Georgia to, to get those seats and, you know, if the check is going to be out the door, of course, I still haven't gotten mine yet, but <laughs> <laughs> much less everything else, taxes. much less like Biden is still deporting people. There's still kids yeah. in cages. Yeah. So it's like, it becomes like this concept of like, well, why did we vote blue again? But I mean, the concept of at least trying to get a more progressive base and, you know, I don't know. I get kind of fed up with electoral politics, but at the, well, at, at the very, you know, at the very least, it's like at least try to get slightly better people in there, better than, than both these parties, you know. Well, the you know, the Democratic, the mainstream Democratic organization is to make sure a Bernie doesn't doesn't get in power. You know, I mean, the fact that Biden wants to go talk with these Republicans is just ridiculous and asinine, you know. Obama, he wants to be accepted. You know, Obama wanted to be accepted. He wanted to be, he's got his house in Martha's Vineyard. You know, he wanted James Boehner to like him. He wanted uh, Mitch McConnell to like him, you know, and and, uh, 
Which is just corny. I mean, you know, the thing is, there's lots of people in this world that I'm fine that I don't get along with because they're just never going to change. They're just terrible. Nothing, you know what I mean? Let, it's like, they're, they're, I mean, you know, what is the point? It's not about negotiation. They're they're playing hardball. Yeah. They're ruthless. Yeah, you have yeah. to be ruthless. And they're good at it. You They're know? good at it. I mean, I think that's the weakness of people like Bernie or even Corbin, too. It's like, okay, yeah. it's cool that you want some good things, but you're too nice. You're dealing with some seriously right. ruthless motherfuckers. You have to come and be ready to, to fight, you know? Let's, you know, I mean, uh, uh, do we don't need any more uh, evidence or examples that, you know, to me, uh, you know, it, it, QAnon is the Republican Party. You know, there's no moderate Republicans. You know, they're they're all they're all in the Trump uh, mindset and the Trump bullshit. And uh, they've really painted themselves into a corner. The evangelical Republicans, even more so, because they've crafted the theology to the ideology of the Republican Party to where they they can't admit they're wrong on anything. Did you run a stop sign? Did you tear the tag off a mattress? It means that there's no God. That's what, one of the reasons that they're so And maybe so that's at- why they love Trump, because his classic yes. pathological liar that, yes. you know, here, we're never we wrong. This guy's never wrong. Right. Great. Well, they can't be wrong. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They can't be wrong, you know, because to admit they're wrong on the simplest, the simplest example or situation is... Uh, is to admit that uh, their whole system is wrong and that, you know, God is perfect. Uh, I believe in God, so therefore I'm perfect. I can't make a mistake. God has a plan for me. He has already scripted this neo-Calvinism. He's already scripted out your life, you know? Right, And uh, if something, we tell you what the plan is, the church tells you what the plan is, and if there's a variation a sudden variation in it, then that means the whole thing, house of card collapse and collapses. And that's why they've doubled down on this stuff. You know, they're scared. They're really, it's pathetic, man. It's really a pitiful sight, you know, to, as I find myself from time to time and in, in, in with a group of evangelical white folks and, uh, well, uh, are they fans of your show? Uh, I mean, do you get are. do you get like some kind of like right wing religious people that are like, oh, okay, this is good gospel music because it it it's not like you know you're you're necessarily like putting hardcore Man. politics, but it right, but it you know, but but then again, maybe not. I don't know, you know. They 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 immediately identify the music as black. They know they've never heard the music before. Now it's black music, and then they don't like it, even though it's gospel music. That's crazy. Oh, yeah. yeah, that's wild. Yeah. That's yeah. Really oh, wild. yeah. Yeah, it is. It's racial. Everything is, you know, I know some people back away from like essentialist sort of race is at the nasty core of everything that Republicans say and do and think, especially in the South. Well, you can't. I mean, you know, people kind of sometimes I think make the mistake of like, oh, it's only about class. And, you know, and like, yeah, their class is yeah. a factor, but you also yeah. can't ignore like race is also a huge factor as, as well. You know, I mean, it's like, yeah, of course. We should be uplifting class, but and we and you know, race is also used as a reason to confuse people and get people to choose sides. But 
it's also a thing. I mean, obviously slavery, all that stuff. So it's like to completely discount race is not a factor, I think, is really naive and kind of an yeah. insult oh, to yeah. people who are Agreed. on the other end of racism. You know? yeah. I mean, at least yeah. my opinion as a white person. I just. Oh, yeah. It's no, kind I mean, of we like, let them. We let them off the hook all the time, you know, yeah. all the time. The press does it. Uh, academics do it. Uh, you know, just in your day to day relations with people you do it all the time you we pull our punches you know there yeah. used to be this area of civil discourse but the republicans and their operatives saw it as hey look the, these other people are not going to transgress that 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 demilitarized zone that's an opportunity we can go in and take that over you know a very a very nasty nasty thing that they did you know yeah and so, They've, uh, I guess one reason that Biden and no Obamas and all that and, uh, uh, you know, the Clintons and all that always find themselves like up against a wall from the word go. You know, they don't have that. They don't have that wiggle room anymore. The Republicans aren't interested in talking discussion and concessions and compromise. Well, and, all that. And, and actually a concept of trying to keep discussing things with people who are coming from that perspective is, I mean, again, it's it's sometimes I don't feel like I've fully grown up, you know, DJing. You know, I, mean, I don't have a a quote unquote real job, or I'm not in public policy, or blah blah blah. But it just seems like insanely naive. It's like okay, maybe yeah. you people look like you're more adult like than I am and have adult like jobs and all that stuff. But uh, if you're an adult, why are you missing one of the most basic? Yeah, like you can't negotiate with these people. And in fact, the no. concept of people no. keep negotiating lends me to believe that then, of course, obviously the Democrats are not genuine because, in my opinion, no one is that stupid, you know? <laughs> so then it starts to become like, well, then it's sort of on purpose. When you keep shrugging yeah. your shoulders and saying like, oh, Lucy pulled away the football again and, you know. Oh, yeah. Oh, you know, it's like, yeah, and Charlie, ja Charlie Brown might have been that stupid to keep trying to kick the football. But, you know, when yeah. you're an adult and you keep saying that and it's like, oh, they, put, they pulled the football away again, it's like... Fool me a hundred times, <laughs> but we Imagine will get that. fooled again. It's just like, okay, you're really not working in our best interest, are you? You know, we'll so, let you slide this time. Yeah, at our at our expense. Or, or we still want to work with these people after all the stuff that they, you know. And we, you know, we need Lyndon Johnson, man, to like call in, like uh, call in McConnell. Hey, man, could you drop by the White House on your way out of town today? Close the door. Grab him by his tie and say, "Listen, you son of a bitch, you know, <laughs> and and like you better behave and quit all this shit, or I'm gonna fucking fuck you up, yeah, you know, and then push him down, <laughs> I know. Very graphic, man. Sinner's crossroads, man. Fire and brimstone, man. Hell yeah. I mean, what? what no, I what? mean these people are yeah. evil. They're evil. You know, they it's, are. It's they up. are. It's really fucked up. I mean, the Democrats are awful, too. I mean, but it's like there's like evil and the whole thing about the lesser evil. It's like, no, they're evil, too. But it's like but, the you know, the you know, the Republicans are just full blown fascists, whereas the Democrats the, the, are like, you know, they're like fascist light. You know, they're just the uh, most right now in some areas, the most effective means of uh, protest are corporations pulling out of sports events out of particular states, you know, corporations, maybe they are people, you know, <laughs> uh, 
now, oh my God, some of these corporations have some type of social consciousness, you know, and now there's all these nonprofit organizations uh, pandering or lobbying corporations. That's a big deal, man. I mean, like uh, pulling the uh, all-star game out of Atlanta, that, that fucked up Atlanta, man, you know? Yeah, and, when and did that happen again? I remember like vaguely hearing month, about that. Okay, last and what, month. what was that? What was that uh, centered around? Like a certain law that was passed or something? Yeah, yeah, the voter suppression laws. Oh, the voter suppression you know? laws, right? As or as the Republicans say, the uh, uh, ensuring strict integrity of our. <laughs> ele- we have the most. We have the best laws in the world. Ensuring integrity of our elections. I just feel like life, you know, especially as you get older, it's just a gigantic gaslighting. Just everything, just so much bullshit all the time. Even the canard, like I was thinking about this today, you know, as you get older, you get more conservative. Like, even that's a bullshit line. I just feel like I keep going in the complete opposite direction, especially as you learn more about this world. And then you realize that... That in itself is yet another selling point for people to buy into when it's also well, bullshit, you know, I, I, you know, you like know, as you get older, yeah. maybe you'll get more money and you'll be in a better tax bracket. And then you just put a bag over your head like you're in the gong show and just enjoy your life and don't look outside what's yeah. going on, you know. And then Play I guess golf. you would be, I guess you would be more conservative because you just don't yeah. give a fuck, you know. But, you know, I, uh, I always talk about um, like with music. You know, when Spotify did that study, well, they didn't have to do the study. You know, they they had all this viewer, uh, I mean, listener, uh, user, um, you know, typed in data, age, what kind, you know, the, the algorithms following what they listen to and all that. Five or six years ago, Spotify, maybe three or four years ago. Okay, um, so they're trying to, like, figure out in terms of the intelligent playlist, like. Right. And then right. they're like, okay, Kevin Nutt. Let's throw on brandy, looking glass. Oh. Yeah, <laughs> hey, he's of that age. He probably bought this forty-five when he was a kid. Da-dun-dun. Yeah, Krabby Appleton's <laughs> go back. Remember Krabby Appleton's go back. No, I don't know that one. Uh, Another AM Gold shit. Ed- Edison, yeah, yeah. Edison Lighthouse. You know, yeah, love yeah, grows yeah. from. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, <laughs> Spotify found out that it, when you're thirty-three years old, most people stop listening to new music. But it's all marketing brainwashing. Right. Uh, it's generalization, you, sort of. Right. What? Where is it in our DNA that says if you're 58 years old like I am, you can't be totally blown away by all this crazy electronic music coming out of Uganda or uh, the glitch vapor stuff, you know, that all these permutations of ambient music and all this, which to me is like mind bogglingly interesting. But I'm not supposed to listen to it because I'm old. Right, right. I'm not supposed to be into current hip hop, you know, which I love. And it's almost like, again, Uh, like we're talking about the South. It's like flattening people. That's what I think is kind of lame about court. And in in an essence, to try and get that lowest common denominator, it sort of flattens out. You know, I don't know what that kind of cheesy book was, like The Long Tail, where it's like the concept that, okay, there's like these hits, but there's also many, many things that people. Yeah are listening to from all these different things, you know, that kind of gets forgotten about because it's like, oh, we got to concentrate on making a hit. But it's sort of the same thing in a way where it's like, it sort of flattens out the possibility of what 
people's actual complexities and their own taste right. because it's like, oh, you're 58, you're from here, you probably, okay, here's another Talking head song because that's like right. the, the universal. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's or something all or whatever, you know. It's all marketing. You are a marketing bot, you know, if that's the way you approach music. If you start right. something, right? You that's people, like if you approach music that way, then you yourself are a bot. Yeah. That's true. Yeah, you're letting the mark determine what your taste is, or what your prejudices are, or, or giving you prejudice. You right, know? right. They're almost kind of like this is what we think you are. Now we're going to create that to then exactly. reinforce that kind of you know put that square peg in the round hole. Oh know, man, Jim, I tell it. you, it's 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 really spooky. I read I read an article. Um, about 10 or 11 years ago in uh it was probably fairness and accuracy and reporting and yeah, no, they're great like fair is the shit and man. One, oh man uh and uh here, here more i need to give more money to that i get an extra 10 bucks i send it to them you know somebody all my tips at leroy go to fair you know yeah, no, fair is the uh, shit man i love their stuff uh, that they mentioned something about uh see and my major at a uh, hunter was media studies that radical media department that they had you know with see, like, i didn't even know that Hunter, yeah, Hunter had a good media department. Oh yeah, man! Uh, critical media. Okay. Uh, uh, P, you know, uh, uh, Stuart Ewan, John Downing, who wrote this great book called Radical Media, um, and uh, uh, it was it was really interesting. Um, and uh, but somewhere I read that uh, they were talking about the social science, uh, uh, the academic social science enterprises, and. You can go. I went to a local library here where I, I, I pay these dues and I can go into the library and you can go to all these academic, um, uh, you know, peer research, supposedly uh, journals, these peer review journals coming out of all these great academic institutions, John Hopkins and Northwestern and all this social behavioral psychology. And all the articles written by academics are written for corporate marketeers. Wild. How how do you how do you uh, how how can you influence people in subtle ways so that you can expand your market share? You know, article after article after article. That's it's not other social scientists or the curious layperson. You know, uh, it's marketing people on how you can manipulate things. Yeah, I think was yeah. that that movie the corporation was talking about like how the uh, documentary. Yeah, they were talking yeah, about killer. like uh how they yeah. were they were researching kids, you know, but they were researching it to sell them more toys. So it almost didn't yes. make your kids more annoying that when they're watching Saturday morning cartoons, they have to get that Barbie or that Lego set. But how do we actually tweak them because yes. then you can get the nagging five-year-old, which is just like more of a force than any commercial, uh, you know, because then you're like, all right, let me shut my kid up and give him. Yeah. And then next thing you know, cha-ching, they got another sale, you know. And the, yeah, yeah. The Cabbage Packs kids are all sold out or whatever. And, you know, you know I mean, like in, in uh, when I was a kid, at least you bought a, a a box of sugar pops, man. It had a cool record on the back, you know, the banana splits man, or something <laughs> like that, you know. I still have those records, you know, like on the back, the banana split song and, and all that. Uh, yeah, I remember th- like some... digging. I was like collecting flexies for a while. And there's all like the, the what is it? The Frankenberry and Cocoa Puff. Yeah. They all made records. Those are great <laughs> terrible, records, man. Like... <laughs> No, those are great. Some of those are great. Flexies, you know? man. 
classic um, shit. I read this uh, interview where uh, Michael Stipe and Peter Buck of REM said that uh, the banana boat, the banana song uh, from uh, back of a, uh, you know, Rice Krispies or something, you know, and this was a, a bubblegum studio band, but their song construction, including going to a different key on the uh, bridge, mm-hmm. uh, was like their template for the first three or four out REM records. That there they you were, go. They were, Classic you know. bubblegum. That's yeah. really funny. Yeah. yeah. So uh, kids don't know about that today. No, I you know. Don't know. And, I, and, I, and I hate to hear that. I hate to hear that because that's, you know, that's that's going down some the road. shit. It is. It's like, uh, hey, man, uh, uh, older could be better. Uh, you know, Rex says that all the time. Older is better, Kevin. Kevin, older is better. <laughs> you know, hey. Uh, does he listen? Rex you know, doesn't Rex like from, like Fool's Paradise. You know? Rex doesn't yes. like Ornette, man. You know, he, <laughs> Rex doesn't like Ornette, and uh, I was like, oh man. So there's like this all this chunk of stuff I couldn't talk to Rex about. You know? <laughs> so, uh, uh, but uh, well, people like you know, like I said, you know, people have like their favorites, so then they kind of focus in. You know, that's cool. Yeah, it's cool. Yeah, you know what I mean? yeah it is like, cool. Someone I like, like Rex probably cuts off in, you know, the mid 60s somewhere, you know, but it's all yeah. good, you know. Obviously, you know, in terms of that kind of music, I mean, you know, he's as deep as anyone, you know, so it's like you're definitely going to learn something. And the, t- yeah. you know, there's crazy records, but, you know, constantly like, challenged. Yeah, but it's, it's kind of, you know, because the thing is, there's so many records that is literally endless. You could just spend your time in a genre and you still, will spend your life listening and trying to get everything. So, you know, but I mean, obviously, yes, yes, like to bounce around. I know you too. Well, that's what's kind of nice about, you know, when I had you on my show to do, you know, to record a set from the Leroy yeah, Lounge. No, because I just think, you know, sometimes we even doing a certain kind of radio show, we get, we get pigeonholed, you know. Yeah. And so then people think that's what you listen to. And it's, it, yeah, it's, but the thing is, as you were saying with the uh, Spotify kind of like market managing thing, it's like, no, we're kind of beyond that. And we can still keep going even beyond that, even beyond the things that we're in now, because there's always new stuff. So it's all, it's sort of about being open too, you know. And, uh, and if you're just kind of like the casual music listener, or if, you know, somewhere between casual and, you know, uh, irresponsible obsessives that we are, you know, that, uh, if, if, if you fall prey to the nostalgia trap, oh, I'm I do all the this. time. I have to challenge myself. But it's not, but it's not just the only thing for you. You know, there's a record I like to listen to that that's like, oh yeah, man, sixth grade, you know, and, uh, big mouth Wanda sitting in front of you, man. Holy cow. You know, right. and, uh, um, your first love and uh, or whatever the way you, you know, your neighborhood felt on a Saturday morning, man, when you would just kind of hang out with your friends and all that stuff. But if that's the only thing then you're like, you're falling into a market trap. Right. You know? Which is and, almost uh, like uh, what is it, the Stevie song? Pastime paradise. You just keep yeah. reliving, you know, the sort of golden age, but it's sort of like, it's kind of elusive because, yeah, I think you should have those moments and relive your favorites and play your favorites. But then oh, if yeah. you kind of do that, it, it becomes a little linear and you're not opening yourself up. And you almost no. get more and more into that circle where yeah. you're not going to bust out of that, you know? Yeah. You know, that's why I like at Leroy. I, I, I like to play 
stuff that's, you know, from the, from last week. I always come back to soul, classic soul stuff, early 60s, that kind of thing. But then, you know, uh, you know, all this other stuff, you know, from all around the world, from the 70s and 80s and even today, you know, and then all like, you know, I play a lot of that coal mine and sill art and timian and big crown yeah i mean even within know? new genre even within yeah. veins yeah coal mine is just destroying it man they have so many it. freaking good records man Shows and the they coal do mine. they and timian yeah. and all this stuff too but coal mine is and just, they always do instrumental they, they put out the instrumentals man which nice. i like just yeah yeah i love that i love that you know and, and uh, uh and it's cool and then you know you could buy uh 10 uh coal mine records for 30 bucks but uh, you know, you go to Fine Wine's house, and Tin Records is going to cost you two grand. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I can't you do, know, you know, I can't it gets do expensive, that. man. It gets expensive. I know. I played some uh, Roosevelt Matthews record yeah. on my show the other night, and it's like I never caught an original that shit because it was always like five hundred <laughs> or a thousand bucks. I mean, it's on some comps too. But it's just like, yeah, I mean, and that's the other thing, too. It's like, as much as I love, you know, finding an OG record and all that stuff, it's like, it really, yeah, to sure. me, is more about the music. And it's like, you know, I'd rather at least just have either a good, you know, reissue or digital copy that's good yeah. that I can play. And then I still have the music, you know? And it's like, okay, I don't have the $1,000 OG 45, but, you know, whatever, again. I still want to play you know, the music. Uh, like, is it, is it only, is it only yeah. like, you know, and I think yeah, like yeah. before the sort of reissue thing and before like people were kind of playing digitally, you know, that's how some of those scenes were a little bit, that those records were so hard to find that either you had to be yeah. lucky digging in some yeah. warehouse or even digging in the 80s or early 90s when these records were cheaper or you have to pay, you know, have a bunch of money and pay a crazy amount of money. And it, it, to me, like when it's strictly about that, it gets a little exclusive, you know, like no one gives a shit because it's like, oh, like, you know, only people that have the original. I mean, I if you want to set up those parties and do it, it's fine. And I appreciate it. I'm just saying, like, as a whole, where it's like that can't be the only way, because otherwise then it's like, why should as you were saying with even DJing, why should only a limited amount of people even have this record and hear it? Like, oh, we have, right. to, you know, it gets a little, you know, corny yeah. in my opinion after a while. Myopic. And then, you know what? A lot of these $1,000 records just aren't that good. Yeah, know? no, that's the other thing too. I mean, some of them are good wow. and some of them yeah, are, yeah. are decent and some of them are yeah. not even that great. But I mean, it's, again, maybe that's the idea is that there's sort of an, an odd sound or it's a little crazy. Yeah, yeah. But then there's, you know, sometimes there's just serious production flaws or whatever, and that's why it probably didn't sell. <laughs> yeah, know? yeah, man. Like, and no one... I mean, some could... of them, like, yeah, they all burned down in a fire or they destroyed all but a few, you know. So yeah, I get it. I... There is someone's... But that's also kind of weird because sometimes what I think the record collecting thing is that, you know, from the hardcore record collectors is they kind of fetishize these super rare records and then yeah. almost common records that are dope kind of get overlooked because, oh, well, it's just a 5 or $10 record. So it's, you know, because it kind of goes back to this worth thing. Like, it's not worth as much, so therefore maybe it's not quite as special as this other record. It's like, you know, like I said, you know, something like Twine Time, like it sold like a million copies in the mid 60s or early. So it's like it's, it's still relatively cheap, but I think it's still one of the I mean, you, you know, yeah, there's plenty of record. amazing records that yeah. 
okay, it doesn't have to be, but it's sort of like when it, the whole value thing and all that stuff, it sort of starts to almost mess with people's tastes a little bit, I think. Yeah. When's the, oh yeah, it's a sickness. When, when have you, uh, when's the last time you picked up a copy of gold mine magazine? <laughs> it's been a long time. <laughs> okay. It had been for, Hey, it had been for me too. Like maybe 15 Is years. Is that still around? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a it's it's a phantom of its old self, man. It's a, you know it's it's much smaller. And then of course you know back in the eighties well, or nineties, they 90s, had listings uh, and stuff too. Right. right? That's so why I, I you know this how many was like hours pre internet to kind of try and find that, records and dealers. That's how that's yeah. how I started digging, man. Was that's like crazy. I didn't know that. You know, with a magnifying glass. Yeah, because like the print is crazy. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the print is like you five know? point or some shit. Yeah, hey, and like so, uh, but gold mine now is like. Uh, 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 I was at a, this great record store in um, Mobile, Mo, uh, Mobile Records, oddly enough. Um, Keith Glass runs it, this Australian guy. You know that guy? No. Oh, we'll have to talk about him sometime. Uh, he produced, um, and when he was in Australia, he produced uh, Nick Cave's first record, the the record that was called Birthday Party. Okay. That they took the name from. Right, right. And uh, Keith's been everywhere, man, but he met at this songwriting uh Gulf Coast songwriting contest about 15 years ago. He met met a girl from Alabama. She set the hook in him, man, and and he stayed here. He's getting ready to move back to Australia. But anyway, he gets gold mines. They send him a free copy. So I was in his store and I was flipping through it. All the articles were like, "How do you start your vinyl collection? What it, what it, what high cost records to look for?" You well, know, hot this record store day. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the bane of how, many record collectors because they're like, how to you know, expand your portfolio into record collecting? Oh no, you know? no, oh, no. Yeah, yeah. You gotta start investing in these fifteen hundred series blue notes. They're hot. They're hotter. You know. than tr- they're hotter than rare coins. Yeah, they are. <laughs> they, they actually are. I, would, are. I wouldn't mind finding. <laughs> I wouldn't mind finding a cache of. of uh, Blue notes. I'd, I'd, I'd trade them immediately. <laughs> no, I, I know. I think my friend who was like kind of more of a disco head and actually country, but you know, he wheeled and deal records and he got some stupid jazz collection that he said, you know, kind of like he lived off for a year just floating them on eBay. So every oh, once in a while, I mean, they're, they're yeah, they get expensive for him. Man. Those records get very expensive. It's crazy. Yeah. I well, mean, they're I good mean, records, but again, it's like, you know. It's the thing. I used to get the Japanese reissues at the fair. You know, it's like okay, there's yeah. like a, you know, eight hundred dollar Lee Morgan record, or I can pay twenty five dollars and get my Japanese reissue of Candy. Okay, I'm fine. And with and, that. and it's just <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Hey, but me I mean, too. no, I mean, I'm just saying, is I'm just not balling. I guess if I had you know a gazillion yeah. records and my hundred two hundred thousand dollar analog sound system, then I'm yeah. like, oh, here's this nice uh-huh. Don Wilkerson record I paid three hundred dollars <laughs> for. <laughs> Anyways, whatever. And uh, but you know it it and it but it comes down to um, you know, it's like what uh makes WFMU continually relevant is that you have this unselfconscious. You have to have taste, and I and I and I I use that word intentionally. You know, you can have every soul record ever on your laptop, but you have to know which ones are good. Yeah, you know, it doesn't matter. Uh, people, oh man, dude's playing off his laptop. Well, so what? Yeah, you know, yeah. yeah. It, you still got to have. There's some clubs like uh, playing in Atlanta sometimes or Memphis. I'll I'll take all vinyl records because the people there they might be playing a little cover you know 
I don't want to hear somebody off a laptop. Hey, it's a dude. No, from, that's what I'm saying. If you want to set up yeah. for parties like that, I, I definitely yeah. think there's a time and place for those parties and bring out yeah. your grails and, and show them off. Yeah. It's all good. Yeah. I'm, not, I'm just saying, like, as a whole, though, yeah. you know, you yeah. have to be no, able I'm, to just, I agree. You know, I agree. But I, yeah, there's a place for those parties for sure. I'm not trying yeah. to completely hate on collectors. No. I obviously have records, yeah. you know. No, I didn't take that at all. So you shut the fuck up. Man. <laughs> I know I need some bourbon yeah. here, man. Let's beef. Yeah. Let's beef. Yeah. My, no, but what my, you were saying you're you were playing in the, like these parties, you know. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I mean, I, I'm not gonna. Uh, I didn't finish my thought. I, I you know, I uh, play like Elmir, a so a really nice soul club. You know, uh, you know those guys, uh, Brian and uh, oh, Jason, Agent Forty Five. Uh, uh, the soul duo, hmm. uh, Jason Stone and Brian Fields. Okay, they do the soul nights at Elmere. The okay. great guys, okay. great great guys. But I, I don't. I, I'll take very carefully vinyl records over there because people want to hear. There's enough people there that appreciate. They're not like Nazis, but they're like, oh, it's you know the guys playing the vinyl. That's cool. That's yeah, cool. The vinyls. But like it, it legal, yeah, the vinyls. Oh, man. Uh-oh. The record, the word that shall that, never be spoken. Do not that say fa- that. It's like Fabio will throw you out of the store if you say <laughs> the vinyls, right? Damn, yeah, Fabio always like posting a, we're talking, by the way, for people who don't know, we're talking about different FMU DJs because we both DJ and FMU, but Fabio, who does an amazing show too and has been on forever, uh, he and has a a ear, ear, earwax records uh, in Brooklyn that's been open for a zillion years. But he posts like random Facebook things that it is the kind of classic crabby record store owner like, oh, these meddling kids asking for X, Y, and Z. You know, do you have the that's new Tool a- record on vinyl? It's like, get the fuck out of here, kid. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's that's why it's so funny. That's why that's why uh, 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 you know um, I'm trying not to say Casey. Um, you know, shit. Wake and bake, man. You know? Yeah, yeah, pigeon. yeah. Clay. Clay that's pigeon. why Clay. Clay pigeon. Yeah. That's why Clay and Fabio work so well together because Clay knows how to pull, uh, push Fabio's buttons. Clay, man. yeah, no, Clay. That was like the really <laughs> classic, like, straight man yeah. kind of like, yeah. Because, uh, well, I think that started because Clay, Clay had that kind of talk show that was after Fabio. Yeah, that, that's right. That the was dusty like it was show. Cut, yeah, the yeah. Dusty Show, and it was sort of a yeah. man on the street show. But yeah. it was like a lot of pre-production because basically he would go around and record people yeah, on the street, yeah. and then he's real good with that. Yeah, too. no, he is. He's pretty funny, but like uh, he's he's a very uh, you know gregarious personality. But like basically, there's sometimes he wouldn't have the show fully, you know, baked. And then of course he has to do an hour of radio, so it becomes him talking and maybe taking yeah. some calls. Which is not easy. I mean, I don't. I would not try to attempt that oh, shit yeah. live. You yeah, know, it's neither. like you have to me carry neither. it. Yes. So of course, like the classic shit with like Clay is, Fabio would have a show three to six, and then his show was six to seven, and he would always like if he didn't have like you know the whole thing like really sorted like got enough interviews, he started this whole shtick with Fabio to kind of cut into his show so that you know he'd have someone to banter with because yeah. it is much easier yeah. instead yeah. of just like talking on the mic. To, you know to an audience and trying to be entertaining to bounce it off that you know and it was just really funny because sometimes Fabio at a certain point would be like 15 minutes into Clay's show and he's like all right yeah. I gotta go man I gotta go <laughs> I remember, like, yeah, yeah. one time I forgot like Fabio had like a pretty prominent guest I forget some like 
classic experimental musician, maybe German or something. And um, and f- and the thing about Clay that makes him a really good interviewer is he knows how to just keep asking questions. And so, like, at a certain point, Fabio was like, knows, and it's just like, okay, I actually have to go. But this other guy was kind of nice, so Fabio kept hitting this guy. And at a certain point, like, Fabio had to be like, you know, Mr. Bojan, like, like with the cane, you know, at Apollo, like, okay, yeah. we're going out here. Like, you know, no yeah. more questions. We're <laughs> but yeah, but like, yeah, and the whole thing is Clay's taste is almost like some kind of classic, you know, listen to a lot of Rush records and ELO. So then it's sort yep. of like the complete antithesis of something like Fabio, who's like the Uber record collector, like here's Hey, like Fobs, you don't Very have any rare Stockhausen, you know, kind of shit yeah. or whatever. And then it's like, <laughs> Those guys were hilarious, though. I, re- I yeah. used to catch that because yeah. I'd be driving a, a fair amount of time around that time. And, uh, yeah, that, that was kind of a classic radio interplay. Those yeah. dudes were very yeah. funny, very funny. Yeah. And f- to this day, Fabio takes Clay at face value. He doesn't realize or he, he, I, I, that, that Clay's kind of baiting him. You oh, know? definitely. Definitely. Because <laughs> so, they had art. some, like, record trade-off at one time. It was like, you know, yeah, exactly. Totally, totally funny, man. But I know. Um, it's quite a, quite a, quite a family FMU, right? Quite a, quite it a is number beautiful. of characters. Totally um, beautiful, man. Yeah, no. Um, you know, I had actually a bunch of questions. We've actually been rapping for a while, but uh, we have, yeah. No, it's all good. Uh, do you have well, a little yeah. more time? Is that good? I do. I do. Yeah. I well, here's another thing I had no idea, which is another all alternative life is uh, you're a fol- folk life act. Archiv- archivist or i am archivist. yes how do you even say these things uh how long have you been doing that i was just kind of hunting around like oh i gotta do some uh, research on you and it's like oh wow that's crazy you even about interv- 12 years 12 years yeah t- how yeah. did you kind of uh-huh. i mean it was that sort of an extension of like you collecting records and all that stuff or is that sort of your background well i knew when i came back to alabama in the late 90s uh I kind of talked my way into hanging out with and interning the folk life department of state council of arts, state council for arts in Alabama is pretty decently funded and uh, very vibrant. And there's a, a incredible organization, the Alabama folk life association, which was actually christened with the, uh, in 1980 with uh, Alan Lomax and Bess Lomax and Archie green, legendary folklorist, uh, in the, in the room, you know, Oh, that's really cool. Yeah. And, uh, um, um, it's still, it's a very, it's still a vibrant organization. They have great relations with the Alabama state council and the arts. And so I sort of befriended the folklorists and the one ethnomusicologist, uh, Steve Grauberger. I play a bunch of Steve stuff on my show. He did a ton of field work in the 1990s, recorded all this crazy killer stuff. A lot of the Perry Tillis, Stuff I play is Steve Grauberger recordings, and um, so that's kind of cool because sometimes you think of like okay, like Alan Lomax and all that stuff that the field recordings are are from a certain time. So that's kind of cool that you know there's people still, still going, going around and obviously still, still recording yeah. it to capture the shit. That's awesome, dude. That's I'm really waiting cool. for um, I'm waiting for uh, you know, uh, young hip hop kids to come to uh, uh, to start integrating uh, uh the button accordion into some of their songs, man, because there's all this uh, Mexican music, you know, on AM radio down here. And uh, they've got to be listening to it. 
you know they're listening to it. Cumbias, how can you not like cumbias, man? Yeah, cumbias good. And cumbia's uh, good. Yeah, a lot of Mexican music is just it's full of cumbias. There is a now. lot of like uh, there is kind of electronic cumbia stuff out there too, you know for sure. Yeah, but you know like trap cumbia. Yeah, I've, uh, I've heard I've heard some of that. So I have a few yeah. things. It's like you know I try to kind of like find it where it's not it's the right amount of rave. I guess sometimes yeah. it can get a little. You know, I'm not like a huge fan of like when it starts to get too Skrillexy or whatever. You know, yeah, it's, it's just yeah. like sometimes pe- things can get a little over tweaked. It's yeah. like everything else. You know, you all have yeah. your own. You, everybody has their own tastes and stuff. But yeah, with electronic music, I think you know, it's just there is an aspect of it, and I think this is what turns people off, especially say if you're in the uh, older demographic and you're outside the Spotify parameters. You're like, what are these kids? You know, because sometimes it is kind of just a little over the top and corny. But of yeah. course, when you find those records that have that nice balance, then. You might have, especially with like a cumbia record, something that kind of has a cool old school feel, but then it has that kind of like 808s or something that's really going to yeah. like punch it, you know, there's on a, a system, the, you know. There's a very vibrant, uh, uh, you know, trap hip hop scene here in Montgomery, Mobile too. Um, and I've heard some local guys fiddling with accordion samples or even have a, a accordion guy play at, at one of their shows, like do these little, these funky kind of accordion fill ins, you know, but it's, it's very peripheral. It's very short. You know, I want to, I want to be at ground zero, man. I want to be, <laughs> I want to be standing outside sun records when, when Elvis is in there and they're about, he's, he's cutting through all that crooner shit. And then he starts, fucking around with uh that's all right mama i want to be outside sun records when that's going on no 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 doubt well you You even you were taping because your own journey in terms of discovering this stuff is you were listening to a lot of uh gospel radio stations in like the 80s and 90s and taping yeah taping yeah just that was my field work was taping this stuff off the radio i was too bashful to go down to the radio stations and 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 meet these people although i that's how I met Isaiah. I find, when I came back from New York, I finally Isaiah played was such a unique, crazy player. I had to go meet him, and uh, and and that's how the Isaiah Owens record came out. And uh, um, yeah, sometimes it's uh, not. I mean, I am, tend to be a little bit shy with the people I don't know too. But then sometimes it's good to just get over that, and you know, just be when people, you know, especially if you're a fan of theirs, and just be like, yo, whatever, you know. Oh, I can't be stopped now, man. I'll walk up to people. <laughs> I'll that's good. That's people. good. I, yeah, I still I, have a little bit of that. I have to get over yeah. it completely. Some, no, me too. I, I have phone phobias. I, sometimes I can't call people I don't know on the phone. Shit like that. that right. Like, uh, but, uh, man, I'll start conversations with anybody anywhere, man. You know, that's my good. kids. That's good. That's healthy. Out. That's healthy. But it you is, were, you were collecting. I mean, because one of the things that I thought was interesting is that you know, in these radio stations, obviously they're not just playing records. They would have groups come and, and see yes, live. live. And so, music. and so that's, what's kind of cool about taping that stuff because, you know, unless they have a radio station archive of it, which is arguable, maybe, maybe not, probably not, then you're taping something that could be periodically lost in the ether. I mean, people might yeah. remember it, but. You Ironically know. enough. Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, so it's kind of like again, in the, in terms of being an, an archivist, uh, it's it's like you're preserving and you're trying to at least like keep this stuff, and then even with your own radio show, yeah, bounce it out there again to be like, hey, 
You know, this is really cool shit. And, uh, you know, in the end, you may have one of the only recordings of it, you know? Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I, I do, you know, I mean, uh, um, you know, up until very recently, a lot of these older guys are unfortunately passing away now, but you know, um, always had cassettes of their radio shows. Uh, sometimes their live performances or one time I found a, I had a cache of a reel to reels that, um, a member of a group had kept of their radio shows from the late eighties and they're in horrible shape. In fact, I was trying to mess around with some of them, clean, clean them up a little bit or whatever. Yeah. And, and then, and then of course they weren't recorded very well. So if they recorded but, low, then you got that buzz. If you try to, pump yeah, it to the right was, volume. yeah, yeah. And then, and, um, yeah, the microphones are 40 feet away, but then the performances are like stone cold killer, man. And, uh, so, you, you try you to just have to a, save. You just have to save it anyway, even if it's like yeah, a, yeah. You know, oh, it's yeah, like yeah. almost some like Charlie Parker side, like live at Milton's. Like even if yeah. it's just shit quality, it's like well, you've captured something. You know? Right, right, yeah, man, yeah. One of my favorite. That reminds me of one of my favorite. Uh, you know, my dad was a Baptist preacher, but he was very, uh, he was very open minded. He was a bit of a free thinker, a bit of a pantheist. Kind of kept it on the low. But, uh, um, you know, I used to have these great discussions with him. But I've always, if I always found kind of a funny cartoon or a joke, I would, that kind of had religious overtones, I would tell him, you know. And uh, one of them was, uh, I showed him this cartoon as Jesus sitting on the side of the Sermon on the Mount. You know, he's about to, to preach his famous uh, Beatitudes and all that. And there's all these people, you know, out in the fields. And Jesus is saying, hey, hey, listen up. Everybody come in real close. I don't want there to be 20 different versions of this, you know? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. Like telephone, yeah. like telephone game or yeah, something, yeah. you know? What did he say? <laughs> Blessed are the sleek, I think he said. I wanted to talk yeah. to you because I know we were kind of talking about, obviously, evangelical religious right. But obviously, oh, since yeah. we're on the other side of the spectrum, and this is something yeah. I still need to do a lot of, you know, reading about, but I've just been hearing about it more and more. It's intriguing. Is this concept of uh, liberation, uh, liberation theology, or is that how you say it? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I don't know if you're, you're the kind Jesuits. of— The Jesuits. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's like the concept that I think is kind of interesting. And again, sort of like how you can kind of have the sort of coastal elite set— not only dismiss the sort of the South, but also religious people when there is actually, you know, people who are religious that are actually very righteous politically, you know? Oh, yeah. And so that's what I think is kind of interesting. You know, again, it's sort of an untapped thing that, you know, why write off someone religious as assuming they're some sort of evangelical yeah, kind of like, you know, hardcore religious right thing when, you know, there is actually other people out there that are kind of like maybe a little bit more into the true spirit of whatever religion they follow, you know, in terms of at least with Christian or Catholicism. It's like, OK, if you're really about helping the poor, then it's not some like, OK, we're at the Vatican with our gold and you know and all this stuff. Oh, it's yeah. like, no, they're actually they out, but they're actually out there. And, you know, yeah. obviously, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, who's like some of the stuff with, uh, who is it, uh, Archbishop Romero or whatever, and uh, was it El Salvador? Yeah, that's how I was radicalized politically, was um, um, in 
when I was in junior high school, I was having nightmares about nuclear war. And I would ask people why, uh, you know, my parents, teachers, people at church, I don't understand why, why would Russia or China want to bomb us? And what do we do? And I didn't get anywhere near uh, any satisfying answers. So I started reading and asking questions. And uh, um, I realized that um, I got a subscription to the New York Times. I got a, when I was in high school, I got a subscription to uh, when I was a senior in high school to the Village Voice, you know. And I would read every article. And every time I came upon a book or an idea that I wasn't familiar with, I wrote it in a notebook. And then I would do more research on it. And I got really lucky. Uh, the first couple of issues of uh, the New York Times I had and the first couple of issues of the Village Voice I had had some really seminal articles by some very interesting thinkers. And um, the whole time I was like, you know, I, I still the question was, I don't understand why the Soviet Union wants to fight us. Or bomb us. It doesn't make any sense, you know. And I don't want to be scared anymore. And that's a deep thing, right there. Oh, uh, the I don't um, want to be scared anymore. I want no, to understand this shit. Yeah, yeah. As opposed and, to uh, just like you taking this stuff in, and it's sort of meant right. to be kind of like fear mongering. Yeah, exactly. And and um, uh, you know, Romero was murdered by uh right-wing forces in El Salvador, uh, Roberto Diobason, I think that's how you say his name. Uh, they always said death, oh, the death squads, as if these were uh, uh, entities and unto themselves, not connected to any uh, uh, army or nation state, that they wandered in from somewhere out of the bottom of the ocean and killed people and then wandered off, that the, the death squads were the U.S. forces, and with the military, in this case, is in El Salvador, with uh, uh, military uh, mil trained not 60 miles from here at Fort Benning, the School of Americas. Yes, yeah, School of America. That's right. That right, is right in right Alabama. Right. Yeah. yeah exactly. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, um, uh, School of Americas. Exactly. Yeah. That, that's where they learned. I mean, that's where they honed all that horrific interrogation and torture stuff. I don't know if you remember the uh, CIA manual that they gave to the Contras was leaked. and It actually, was like a comic book, right, or something? Yeah. Because well, I think was, like uh, uh, Matt Groening back in the day when it was like Life in Hell pre-Simpsons made, yeah. made a joke about it, you know? Well, somebody like uh, Open Letter Press, you remember that? Like Open Pamphlet, you know, the, those Open Pamphlets from the 80s? Uh, one of the small radical houses published it. And... Uh, you could look at it now, you know, I mean, like shit, like this, the waterboarding thing was like, did these people not know? Had they not read any, you know, like Lawrence McCoy, who did uh, the, the drug books of Southeast heroin, politics of heroin in Southeast Asia? You know, he didn't have to do that deep of research. The facts were right there. People just didn't want to look at it. You know, yeah. we've been we've been torturing people since the get go. And waterboarding is just the surface of it, man. Yeah. You know, and, and uh uh, you know, with CIA people, we killed 500,000 people in Guatemala in the 1980s. Yeah. Rios Montt, a Pentecostal president, an evangelical preacher president, oversaw and allowed uh, the CIA and these horrific uh, forces within the Guatemala military to go and massacre genocide uh, against the Mayan Indian population, you know. 
Ronald Reagan said, I understand that there are some tough things that need to be done in relation to this. And that was like, go ahead and do it, you know? And uh, I mean, look at Colombia at the moment, you know, even, which is also yeah. oh, forces trained by the U.S. and the U.K. You yeah, know, I mean, that, there's your plan. Colombia is shooting Israel protesters from Apache helicopters. You know? Yeah, Israelis and uh, uh, it's Nazis. You know, the Israelis uh, were, were working with its Nazis in, uh, uh, in the 1980s in Bolivia and places like that, you know, right, uh, right. With, with these drug people and, and all this kind of shit, you know. And, uh, but anyway, um, uh, I didn't really have a eureka moment, but uh, the El Salvadorian Civil War and the way the New York Times covered it, you know, Arch they, they shot and they murdered a priest, the death squads said to be associated with the right-wing elements within the El Salvadorian military. 20 families in El Salvador owned 80% of the land, and the Americans allied themselves with those 20 families. All they had to do was to give a couple of acres of land to these people and, and, and make, you know help them out with their first crop or whatever, and there wouldn't have been a 10-year a, a civil war. You know, 80, 100,000 people being murdered. Well, I think that's the problem yeah. with capitalism is there is no limit. So it always has to be more. And it sure. always has to be like the very lowest. So that's why, you know, you don't have a minimal, you know, the minimum wage still won't go up even in a pandemic. We still won't get health insurance still in a pandemic. And then, right. you know, you're yeah. seeing all these jokes at the moment where it's like, oh, all, all these restaurants can't find workers and all this shit. And it's like, well, yeah, because you you have no benefits and you pay people maybe $10 an hour. Why the fuck would they go to yeah. work? I mean, if they don't absolutely have to, I was kind of shit, dude. It's kind of shit. I was listening you know? to NPR or uh, a Marketplace or something yesterday or earlier today, and they were like, oh, they were talking to these people. We can't find workers. And I'm like, say it, say it, say it. Why they can't find them? <laughs> They could never, I will, like, NPR, well, you know, I mean, some of them are kind of scared to them. come back to work. Some of and I'm like, go on, go on. Yes. <laughs> they don't, they don't want to come. They don't, they don't get paid shit. <laughs> they don't have any protections. Never, never, say they'll it, never yeah? say it. They'll they, never yeah, they say won't. it. I mean, that's the whole thing. It's like, you know, yeah. that's the thing. That's a joke is like, you know, they slap these labels on like RT or something like state sponsored media. Meanwhile, much like we have two parties of the same party, we have 20 different media sources saying the exact same thing. So if they're all bootlicking, <laughs> you know, what's the point except to just yeah. confuse people even more? Like, well, I read yeah. it in the New York Times and I read it in the Atlantic and NPR mentioned it and <sighs> foreign policy and it's all the same shit. You know, it's like, OK, uh, I guess there's a genocide and, you know. In China, because uh, there's 20 different people citing some bullshit Adrian Zenz report. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. It's just, and but you see, oh, you know, wow. that's how this shit gets manufactured. You know, because it kind of like, you know, there was some CIA clip about, and you know, where they almost sometimes will have stories originate from other countries, and then Reuters or AP will pick it up, and it just oh, all this yeah. kind of like bouncing around shit. So then you kind of oh. like it's sort of fuzzed out where yeah. You know, even where the story originated, but now you have 20 people saying it. So then it starts to kind of like osmosis, you know. Oh, they're, they're fucking so good at that, too, man. It's twi I, I really absolutely Planning despise stories. the media. I mean, I mean, the fascists are one thing, but these are the people that are the supposed intellectuals that obviously are just taking whatever pay or, you know, knowing how the system works and then writing those articles, you know. Well, and then there's uh, and it's just like, or or even like you were saying with like the headlines with uh, 
you know, El Salvador, you know, anytime that it's sort of like oppressors violence or, you know, are, you know, you know, friends of the U.S. or the U.S. when doing something or cops or anything, it's always in the passive voice. You know, it's like officer involved shooting, you know, or, you know, teen, you know, teen dies, blah, blah, blah. It's like, it's like, okay, who killed, who killed the person, you know? And did they murder them even, you know, but it's like, they'll never say it. And it's almost like you just want to, again, punch these people in the face. Like, fuck you for writing that story. Yeah. Fuck um, you for making that the headline when a kid gets shot by a cop. Fuck you. You know, it's so insulting. And then, of course, they want to claim like they're the intellectuals because it's a well-written article with... It's complex. All their dots Jim. and ties. Yeah, it's com- everything's fine. Yeah, They'll Israel say, is complex. Well, it's they're really like, complex. They're we shooting sixteen-year-olds in the back, but it's complex. Fuck yeah. you. Yeah, <laughs> they they use that all the time. Awful. When I hear that, awful man. Well, it's like, um, you know, I used to cut out New York Times articles. I still have boxes of you know in the eighties cutting out articles. And one of the things it's so it's so insidious. Uh, even today, you hear people say the El Salvadorian civil war where 80,000 people were killed and they make you think it was a real, you know, it was uh, a clash clashes, right? Like it, that. Clashes. The gorillas, the, gor- the gorillas were only responsible for, you know, a thousand or so of those deaths, you know, 95% of it, 99% of those, of those uh, people killed in the civil war were killed by the El Salvadorian military. You know, it's like, if you, I'm not sure what the numbers are now, but I always tell people, you know, Palestinians and Israelis, you know how many Israelis have been killed in any way uh, since 1967? I, I think it's still less than a thousand that, that have been killed by, quote unquote, Palestinian terrorism. It's a very small number. How many Palestinians have been murdered? It's, it's a hundred, hundreds of thousands. Isn't Endless. It? Endless. And, and, and you tell people that and they can't wrap their head around Plus it. Plus they kicked everybody, you know, it's like there's many, there's millions of people who can't even return. Meanwhile, like, you know, no. my mom is Jewish. So even though I grew up in Southern California, like, let's say I really took an interest in wanting to move to Israel. I would have, you know, more, I would have more of a right from an Israeli law perspective to move and live in Israel than a Palestinian grandma who got kicked out of her house and still has the yeah. original key. I mean, it's like, and that's, again, it's yeah. like, it gets very frustrating when people say it's complicated. It's like, again, yeah. you want to just slap these people like, fuck yeah. you for it saying compli- it's complicated, you know? That's right. That's right. And it's I'll a say- cognitive dissonance, you know? It's like they just, yeah. because again, I don't think adults are that stupid. So then it's something else going on psychologically. That yeah. just is like, I can't see it because, as you said, even with the religious right, then it's the house of cards. Everything they believe in will fall, which it right. should because it's everything is built on a motherfucking lie. It is. With so many things it in this so. world. So it's like, yeah, it oh. should fall. And like maybe you might have a crisis, but then maybe you'll come out of it a better person, yeah. less genocidal. I mean, to even say that shit is complicated, it's like, okay, you're you're that. just kind of yeah. like looking the other way while a genocide happens. It's like, yeah. okay, maybe you're not sticking the knife or pushing people off the land directly, but what are you doing, man? Are the doing, buses going to be late? Is, it gonna, is genocide going to make the trains late? Oh, my goodness. Yeah. I mean, that's liberalism, yeah. kind of. You know? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, I remember. Is genocide uh, gonna make the train late? Is genocide yeah. gonna oh, like dear. keep me from my macchiato at brunch? You yeah, know? it's like I don't know. I don't know. I remember um, uh, during the Rodney King riots and um, in uh, in '92, NPR actually ran a story about a father uh, complaining about how horrible it was that he had he couldn't take his two daughters to their private school across town because uh, uh, they would have to go through certain sections that were now cordoned off, you know? Right. I can't, you know, and I'm, I'm listening to it. And I'm it's like, it's funny what you remember well, too, right? You uh, remember that. That's crazy. Yeah. I mean, I, and when I heard it, I was like, I didn't listen to NPR for several years after that. I'm like, did I just hear a story where they were saying, yeah, I'm supposed to have sympathy for this millionaire that sends his kids to private schools just, and he, you know, but the the thing is uh, the media functions as the voice of the ruling class. So even though it seems like, okay, we're reporting the news from this objective way, you know, there's, I mean, an objectivity is complete bullshit. There's always a perspective, even the stuff that you leave out, even if you're writing as straight, as straight a story as you want, you know, in terms of what happened, there's still going to be some framing, but Beyond all that, you know, yeah. it's, you know, why are, why are do these headlines, you know, again, are infuriating and why are they written by what seems like assholes where well, they're being paid by elite assholes? And that's the message. It's like, you know what? Let's get this angle and let's see if we can generate some sympathy for the millionaire, even though, you know, and, obvi- and the other thing, too, that's really crazy with Rodney King just being like one of the, you know, obviously was happening for decades and decades and decades before that too you know it was just captured on video and then how many people have died since then and where is the progress it's like the answer is more reform well we got to throw more money at this you know at this at yeah. like the police or whatever and so it's kind of like yeah I, that's what makes those stories kind of sick in a way you know like or or even like people saying well the fund the police is a little strong and it's just like you're, you what you're hearing is the psyche of the ruling class trying to, to yes. basically gaslight yes. and hustle a con and that right. i just feel like as as you get older it's like wow it's just like life is a big gaslight i mean i know that word kind of gets thrown around almost too much sometimes where it's like people don't even know what the meaning is anymore but it just seems like there's just like they're just constantly trying to sell you bullshit like as real as a democracy and <coughs> xyz you know i mean <coughs> biden is the next uh, fdr you know <laughs> It's just like, it's like how, first of all, are these, and again, these are adults writing these stories. These are adults. I mean, I understand they're getting paid and that's exactly why they're writing this bullshit, but it's just complete, utter motherfucking bullshit. I'm sorry. Not sorry. Come on. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. No, I mean, and you know, as fair always points out that what's, what's, you know, what's the main goal of corporate media and uh, private media in the United States. It's to make money. It's not to inform you and, uh, and the strategies they use to maximize readers or listeners at a particular moment. So they can go to advertise of a certain demographic. So they can go to advertisers and say, we can deliver this demographic to you for your product at this particular time. Uh, so give us the money. You know, and the way you do this, uh, you know, is through these marketing techniques, 
you dumb down the content. Uh, you know, Click you have more headline that then, you know, talk shows on NPR. These are name talk shows, you know, um, uh, you know, I, I, I like, you know, way with words or whatever. It's kind of fun, you know, if you're driving across country or something, but they're used. Uh, I don't know if you've ever picked up a, a copy of the uh, Rob Weisberg posted this once on the Gab list. Um, it was the cover of the uh, public radio um you know, their trade magazine. And on the front of it, it said, just like a mall needs a anchor store, NPR needs anchor programs. I mean, this totally cut and pasted off a of business 101 textbook. Right. You know? Right. And uh, I'm like, no, they don't. You know, no, they don't. You know, uh, it doesn't matter how many people are listening at a particular time. It's, 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 you know, like the Velvet Underground, the cliche, you know, only 500 people bought the album, but they all formed bands. You know, only 500 people listened to this radio show, but they all went out and wrote books, you know, or they all became highly uh, in, uh, high integrity journalists. You know, you can't say you're reducing something down to numbers at a particular moment and let that be the end all and be all, you know. Uh, as a justification for what you're doing. Yeah. Well, then it kind of gets to that lowest common denominator thing, you know, where it's just like you're, you're kind of flattening things and you're, you're, and that's the thing too, that people have even talked about. I think even Marx, I mean, I, I need to read him or whatever. I'm a rookie communist, but like the concept <laughs> of just like that capitalism limits people's, you know, possibility because of like i mean if on a yeah. very basic thing it's like yeah. well you have to grind so much to even just have basic shit and have health insurance that you don't have time to be maybe as creative or you know because you're grinding well, i mean that's that's kind of like what kind of yeah. ta it takes away and even that concept yeah. of like well we got to get things that are big and successful and that's how we view the measure that lots and lots of people are seeing it but it's like well what is the quality of the programming you know what are they talking about well you know why is it they're rioting in the streets over the fact that we can't come up off the patents for the vaccines man ridiculous i mean it's just it's You're a it's a, so, it's a sociopathic world and yeah. that's the thing that wow. i think kind of gets to yeah. me when you still have these newspaper articles like things are good or whatever they're trying to sell, it's like, this is sociopathic shit. We're talking about hundreds of thousands or more of people that are going to die because they do not want to release a patent. F again, fuck you, man. Sociopaths. Right, right. Like right, Bill Gates right and these people, man. Awful. Yeah, right, right. When, right when you finally heard it, I mean, it was only on alternative media that you had this pointed out and discussed. And then about two weeks ago, three weeks ago, uh, CNN and um, uh, New York Times started saying, hey, uh, especially when the World Bank and voted against it, you know, the, uh, the, the uh, World Who Bank. Or whatever. And, yeah, when, when they said, no, no, we can't do it. Which, again, then, Bill Gates came in to, to make sure that happened, you know. Yeah. And, and, and what a foundation. Yeah. Let me make sure that the patent rights are protected in a pandemic. Like, what the hell is the point of your fucking foundation? Well, right. So, so the very first reports that I heard, the reporting done on, uh, on NPR, uh, First of all, they, they used a, 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 a phrase or a technique that drives me nuts, and they'll say they've, ne they've totally ignored this issue. And the first time that uh, any issue, any particular issue, and uh, 
the first time they report it, they go, well, we've heard a lot about this. Oh, God, we're having to report about it again. And they have it. You know, we've heard a lot about this uh, patent thing. Not not the hell on NPR, man. You know? Yeah. Then, well, they always kind of cover their tracks, too. Like, well, we've really yeah. been talking about it. Like, no, you haven't. <laughs> yeah. We've heard a lot about this. Are we going to have to talk about this again? And uh, um, there's a uh, lot of games. There's so much games. With, oh, they're like, so good how at it. these. Yeah, there's a lot well, of right, psychological games with with stories and media. Right so after NPR, the, the, immediately, like the same day that they started reporting on this issue, they had all these stories about, well, there's not enough vaccines to go around. How about distribution? What? And it's like they're stonewalling. You know, that's what it is. I mean, that's like, you know, because, the, you know, you want to tell me that, that oh, I, we want to do it, but we can't because we just don't have the logistic infrastructure to actually go about it. You know, it's hard. It's complex. And that's you know, why NPR is, is the liberal base, because it's like that Simpsons meme. Like, you know, we've tried nothing and we're out of ideas. You know, it's like, I mean, that is that's about, liberalism. It's like because they're wringing their hands because they don't want to come off as complete fascists. So then they're just like, well, we tried, but you actually didn't do anything Hi, I'm, at all. <laughs> I'm, I'm Kai, I'm Kai Rizdahl, and tonight we're starting a five-part series to report on and appreciate the Cuban response to the COVID. Let's that was see a pretty why. good. That was a pretty good NPR uh, voice because yeah. NPR so, voice is another thing that drives me absolutely. Oh insane. man, so, <laughs> that why, whole style, why? you know. Look, look what I bet you. How about I mean, why, why can't we have something called vac uh, vaccine ships? You know, we, we have these we, uh, 12 or 15 tanker uh, of these bulk carriers and they go to different places in a week and pick up all these extra vaccine stuff and then hightail it to three or four different hotspots around the world. You know, the. Victory ships, the vaccine ships. I mean, there's all kinds of things. There, there's a million. I mean, it's like. Don't tell me it's hard to do. Well, like right now, what's crazy is uh, I was just reading a story about how Cuba is. And again, all the things that Cuba has been under the, you know, you know, under the thumb of like the U.S. empire and still holding out all this time. And then on top of that, they're doing shit. They almost like, you know, whatever, curing like lung cancer, all the shit they're coming up right. with. And they right. have a hundred million vaccines ready to go. They yes. can't get syringes because of well, you, all the sanctions. Which again, yeah. it's like it's just economic gangsterism. It's like the whole sanctions yeah, and, thing is just—it's war. I mean, sanctions is death. Like again, it's this kind of like happy, meaningless economic term. So you don't think of like, oh, U.S. is sanctioning this country, and it's like, yeah, when there's like, you know, like in Venezuela, forty thousand people or more, or Syria. You know, they're causing children to die. So it's like when you look, think of the word sanctions, you don't think like, oh, and we're killing children. But that is what you're doing quite a number of times with this shit. Well, know? I mean, the, and the even in this part, like, why can't Cuban get syringes? Sanctions, you know. But even then, even then, they're virtually the whole population has been vaccinated. They have an incredibly low, I mean, they, you know, uh, um, uh, death rate. Uh, infection rate, you know, how could how? But the American press cannot do anything positive toward Nothing. a socialist country. No, they're no. not allowed. Look, you know, when, when look what happened to Bernie when he talked about the literacy rate in uh 
in Cuba. I thought this was going to be a goddamn bedlam, man. I thought he was going to be lynched by the press at, at the at the place where he said that. You know, well, I mean, again, the press is the voice of the ruling class, and what does the ruling class want? You know, make make money on war, and you know, having a, whatever hegemonic, you know, just a total control of the world. That's basically it. So that's any any system, you know, that basically. Because the concept is, if you look at something like Cuba, it's like, oh, you know, they everyone can get educated with low budget and 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 have health care, and that's you know, of course they can't Everybody have that because that will dismantle the pharmaceutical industry and and other industries. So they Oops. can't have well, they can't have these things survive, and then. You have dipshits on Twitter. It's like, well, no socialism country ever worked. It's like, yeah, because you keep assassinating their leaders and you keep handcuffing and kneecapping them in any way. And like, I mean, imagine if like China funded the Proud Boys and gave them anti-tank weapons, you know, but that's what we do in Syria. That's what we do in these countries. It's like, but of course, you know, it's just a lot of, uh, you know, just so much disinformation. I don't know. We, We can keep going here, but, uh. Uh, I want to. Can I talk about Bessemer? I, I probably should. Yeah, actually, yeah. Like, let's let's talk a little bit about Bessemer because I know I was listening to a recent archive, and that was kind of like around the time that the union vote was happening in Bessemer, Alabama, at the um, at the Amazon plant, which unfortunately got shot down again. I'm sure there was a lot of uh, misinformation and stuff, you know. But but you were kind of what was cool about that archive is you were playing a bunch of uh, gospel tracks. What what years were those from? Like forties, fifties, the twenties and the thirties. Oh, okay, twenties and thirties. That's crazy. Let me let me yeah, tell you yeah, this do story. Your thing, do it's, your thing. it's an unbelievably fascinating story. Um, there was no Birmingham at the end of the Civil War. Birmingham, its nickname is the Magic City. That's because it did not become. It was. It wasn't even a crossroads. You know. In the 1870s, uh, Capital realized that Birmingham is the only place in the world where all the three ingredients you need to make steel are in the ground at the same spot. Nothing needed to be, I don't even know if I could tell them off there, it's what's coal, limestone, something else, iron ore. They didn't. You wouldn't like at Pittsburgh or places in England. They have you didn't to import have the, certain raw materials to make you, the steel. All the raw materials to make steel are at that area at Red Mountain, which became Birmingham. Interesting. And by, and by 1900, uh, Birmingham was one of the biggest, if not the biggest, city uh, in Alabama. One of the biggest in the South. So, you had coal mining, steel industries that need a lot of labor, and you have no town. So you had these uh, African-Americans population and white boys, rural white boys, landless, yeoman farmers, etc., cetera, uh, all around Alabama, Georgia, um, Mississippi. And in the space of really about 10 or 15 years, they migrated to Birmingham. They had been... The various uh, schools that uh, African Americans could go to in Alabama, uh, you know, there were there were different organizations that had different schools. There were some public schools. They hired almost all these cl- uh, schools, especially 
say around Selma, because a lot of the people that migrated to Bessemer and Birmingham, Bessemer's really part of Birmingham. It's right okay. next. Okay. And uh, uh, I always say, too, that you know that uh, uh, one of the uh, uh, leftover uh, products of the steelmaking um, is uh, um, an entity, uh, you know, called Dolomite. And That's I always love that. I didn't realize that. Okay. Yeah, there's a Dolomite. I didn't Alabama even think that gym. was like a real, real yeah, yeah, actual Jim. thing. Okay. Jim, you, Jim, you can go to Dolomite, Alabama, man. That's hilarious. Rudy Ray Moore. Yeah. That's hilarious. Well, but these, uh, these schools, these elementary schools, because they're really, you know, you, you, you couldn't go to junior high and high school. Uh, uh, the white power structure, the terrorists, the, the, the redeemers. The neo-Confederates that took back over in 1870s, uh, the government structures and all throughout the South with the capitulation of the national government in Washington, uh, you had music classes in these schools, and they were called voice culture classes because they were taught by usually Tuskegee Institute music teachers. Everybody knows the story of the Fisk Jubilee Singers uh, from Nashville, uh, free blacks that were at Fisk University. Uh, they needed money in the 1870s. They went on tour and eventually, not at the beginning, but on these tours, and, and they didn't want to sing the slave songs, the spirituals. But when they did, you know, the, suddenly they were a worldwide sensation. And, um, um, but the harmony, the, the music, musicologically, the harmony parts that were taught at Fisk and especially Tuskegee, uh, emphasizing a, a very even harmony of all the four parts were taught at these voice culture classes. So you had thousands and thousands of these younger African-American students that were trained in harmony by the time they were in their sixth grade. It's 1870s, 80s, and 90s in rural Alabama. So many of these people migrated then to Birmingham because you could get these jobs paid well. You know, as long as you didn't get picked up for vagrancy and went into the horrific convict lease system, you, the, uh, the, the um, entities that financed and built the steel mills and the coal mines, you had company houses, man. I mean, these were like mansions. But when these people from all different parts of, of the rural South and around the Alabama you know, first day on the job, they go to the communal showers and and all of a sudden one guy starts singing a song he learned in elementary school. Another guy joins in and another guy joins in. It was just this, this uh, incredible uh, um, font of singing talent of these people. It, highly educated uh, in these uh voice culture dynamics from these Tuskegee Institute singers. And then, of course, a lot of these people were uh, religious, mainly Baptist churches. So you had all these Baptist churches that would go to churches and they all, they all realized, even the women, um, they all had this basic knowledge of harmony and quartet harmony. This 1890s, early part of the 1900s. So they were attuned to what was going on nationally with the, like the rise of uh, W.A. Tindley, you know, uh, publishing songs like uh, What Are They Doing in Heaven Today? 
uh, and uh, stand by me, you know, the, the one that's, you know, uh, um, um, you know, when the, when life is, uh, the storm tossed me over, stand by me, you know, that still everybody knows the song if they heard it. And also they were listening to contemporary ragtime, uh, you know, the old cakewalk tunes, ragtime morphing into jazz, um, and, and blues young kids are going to be listening to everything. So at churches, they started forming all these quartets, uh, in imitation ultimately of the Tuskegee and Fisk groups, but unlike the Tuskegee and Fisk and the black college groups, um, they were more open to current musical influences and the music departments at the, like Phillips high school in, uh, Birmingham had an amazing music department. Uh, the teachers that were trained at Hampton, uh, Fisk, uh, Tuskegee, and they would really uh, hone the, the quartet skills of these students. So in uh, the Rolling Mill Four and Foster's singers, R.C. Foster, who lived into the 80s long enough to be interviewed by Doug Seroff in the 1980s, and that where a lot of the information I just told you came from, uh, just overnight, you had hundreds of these superb quartets in and around the Birmingham area singing a particular style of smooth, even harmony that eventually sort of stressed the baritone singer became known as the Alabama style. Tus the, uh, uh, the Temptations, who mostly were from Birmingham, were huge fans of the Inslee Jubilee Singers. Inslee, uh, a satellite town of Birmingham, steel mill town, just like Bessemer. The, the Temptations, anytime the, uh, a Birmingham quartet sang in Detroit or in Chicago, they were there. And if you listen to the Temptation Harmonies, it's total Alabama style. That's wild. Yeah. That's so wild. You had, I'm learning a lot right here. That's crazy. Yeah. So in the, in the 19-teens and the 1920s, you just had this explosion of these quartets singing not only gospel songs or spiritual songs, but also songs of the day, you know, some from, uh, you know, Ham and Eggs and, um, uh, um, you know, uh, come on and join that band. Uh, uh, Tin Pan Alley songs at, at, uh, from the late Golden Slippers from the uh, late 1890s and um, and some raggy tunes as well. And but they all worked at also worked at the steel mills and in the coal mines. And when uh, the initial organizing people came in from the north, um these workers took to it right away because they were used to organizing um, around their churches, around their schools, or in the community organizations and clubs that the men had. They knew that there were power in organized numbers. You in know? terms of organizing a union. Yes, but they took to it right away. Right away, man. And there were tensions, of course, and it's not a, 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 a totally... Uh, paradise but from the go especially in the cio what became the cio these these were biracial unions before world war one that's pretty crazy in alabama you know so these people so um you know you had the birmingham jubilee 
uh, singers um, uh, who recorded uh, about 80 sides for Columbia, the famous Blue Jay singers. Uh, so these, these yeah. groups made a lot of records, basically. They made professional records. They recorded for Victor, Paramount, Columbia, Jeanette. They recorded for all the major labels. They backed up Ethel Waters on her tours. They The Birmingham Jubilee Singers lived for three years in New York City playing uh, playing uh, cabaret shows with uh, Black Vaudeville. Um it, it, it's it's amazing, and but that court that jubilee quartet style, um, became associated with the churches and the unions, and you one of the most superb uh, quartets, uh, original jubilee quartets, the Sterling Jubilee Singers became uh, the CIO singers. They they traveled, uh, you know, this side of the Mississippi singing at CIO gatherings. So it's almost like a pro-union gospel quartet, kind of. Yep. That's insane. And again, this is like in in the twenties or or earlier. Brotherhood. And they they interpret and they they stress the Bible, they stress in the teachings of cooperation, sharing, uh 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 resistance, uh spiritual resistance. Uh they didn't use the term nonviolent, but it was passive resistance, uh but you know that uh, uh, organizing and unions, the strength of the many is the strength of the few. You know, and th- uh, those ideals never wavered from the people in it, uh, the black population in and around Bessemer all through the '30s and '40s. You had out of the countryside, you had the sharecroppers organizing. Uh, the, the Southern Tenant Sharecroppers Union, um, highly aware and smart sharecrop, black sharecroppers and white sharecroppers, again, in biracial unions, fighting the landowners for just pay, uh, not to have this debt peonage. So there, there was this his, historical continuum and infrastructure, if you will, tradition among rural black farmers and some white farmers and steel workers and, and coal workers. Um, and then through the churches and the civil rights organizing of the forties, fifties and sixties, it never really ended. You know, it just, it came up on the national radar and it went back down. So it's perfectly logical that there would be this organizing and union um uh, fertile ground in Bessemer, although they didn't handle it correctly, they didn't educate the uh, the workers well, like they you're should. Always, you're have. always you're always up against a big wall because you got people with literally limitless money. I mean, Basis is about to you know construct yeah. some custom yacht. So I mean, that's what that's who you're up against. It's always kind of like sort of an underdog situation, though. You know, there is power in many, and you can. It's always nice when you know you do overcome. I mean, I think. I forget someone was quoting someone else, but basically saying that, like, you know, history sometimes is a zigzag, you know, so you have some wins, you have some losses. And, you know, it was nice to kick out the fascist people in Bolivia, but then in Ecuador, you know, obviously that guy, Guillermo Lasso won. So it's like you kind of have wins and losses and, exactly, you know, you just keep pushing. But I think what was really interesting, again, just going through some archives and uh, listening to that, in the context of current news, it's just like it's crazy that there's this whole 
other history that again you never ever hear about but that's it's really kind of insane you know and you, you're playing tracks that were like again it's like pro-union gospel and of course the, oh, the yeah. music is amazing too so that's that's always oh, like yeah. a nice thing yeah. you know it's like we always want good messages in music but of course being music heads it's like you know it's amazing when it's like an amazing track and the message and well, it's just crazy well, it's just like a real yeah. slice of history i just thought it was pretty fascinating and oh, especially because I, I, yeah. I probably, you know, like, again, many knuckleheads on the coast. I'm like, I didn't know Bessemer from wherever, you know what I mean? Aside from, okay, they were trying to organize and fight that. So it was really cool to kind of hear all that background and story on all that stuff, you know? Yeah, it's, uh, and there's, um, if you if you want to, uh, Lynn Abbott, Lynn Abbott, who wrote the book on Utah Smith that I published for Case Quarter, he's, his main thing that he and Doug Seroff had been doing, uh, for the past 40 years, uh, researching African-American vocal um, styles. And uh, they've written three books. I'll send you the links. Okay, yeah, I'll um, check it out. They, 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 they are paradigm-shifting research. But Doug Doug's initial research, uh, uh, he's from New York, a good 60s radical that moved to Nashville, in the early seventies, he was a record collector and that's, he had a kind he sort of had that on the side and he started seeing these Birmingham quartet records that were coming in that he was finding junk shopping and all that. So he drove down to Birmingham one, one day in the mid seventies and just went through the phone book and there's all the names of all these singers. And he called them. Can I come talk to you about and at that time Again, that's, being proactive, you know, like get yeah. over your shyness, just go say yeah. what's up to them. That's amazing. That's really yeah. amazing. And, um, the, uh, well, I've got, uh, you know, Chris Ware, you know, that cartoon, the illustrator, Chris Ware, he does a lot of New Yorker covers. Yeah. He did they, the, he did the cover. This is the book that, uh, uh, Doug and Lynn did on, uh, their research on the origins of the blues pre-1920, pre-recorded era this is this is Butler Mays, the original uh, Butterbean, Butterbean and Susie. Butterbean you know and Susie, I love okay. them. Yeah, because okay. I, I had that track that was okay. on um, that that R. Crumb, you know, the Stash yes. Records, yes. Uh, Elevator Papa, Switchboard Mama. Yes, yes. Their I love that record was, so much. Okay, their their act was a total copy of of uh, May. Uh, what's what's uh, uh, Butler Mays, Butterbeans, and um, uh, his his wife's name I'm forgetting. Um, Butler Mays died. He's from Montgomery. He's buried about a mile from here. Okay, was a huge vaudeville, black vaudeville, and they came um, out of that vaudeville scene too. Butterbeans and right. Susie. You know what? Yes, and they, they because uh, Butler Mays died tragically. Um, Butterbeans and the, the people that did Butterbeans and Susie. Uh, um, Help me out, man. I'm all. I need another bong here. Hold on. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> exactly. You know, I'm about to smoke out. I smoked before this, so I wouldn't be like, you know, I I'll, didn't I'll smoke you. before. I'm going to smoke after, so I'm like, not a complete idiot during this. There was, but. starting in 1870s, and there was a vibrant, very important, upscale black vaudeville touring circuit. And it wasn't just the medicine shows, although they, they were very important as well. But this idea that country blues uh, 
formed from work, uh, work songs, uh, uh, open-ended, structurally filled hollers, uh, was formalized around 1910 or so um, into, you know, with the, the, the guitar, uh, all these early guitarists uh, played banjo up until about 1905, 1910. Uh, Mexicans have always been in the South, Always. The Confederacy could not have survived without the investment in Mexican silver dollars. I always like to point that out to the old colonels I meet every now and then, you know, <laughs> that talk about the image. Hey, man, the, the, the Confederacy would have been solvent uh, after its second year if the Mexi there wasn't Mexican silver dollars. The con Mex uh, Confederate money was all uh, uh, supported by Mexican bullion, you know. That, that was coming in from Veracruz all through the war. And, uh, um, but um, um, these vaudeville circuits, um, the, the, the country blues, trying to find my train of thought, um, basically, it's a bit of an overstatement, but basically you could say that as we know it, the country, the, the classic country blues artists, um, of the 1920s and 30s, the dudes with their guitars coming out of the Delta um, and to an extent the East Coast, you know, that finger-picking East Coast style uh, and, and uh, were takes on songs that these people were hearing on the touring vaudeville and medicine shows. That's where they learned the blues. And it's, you know, the romantic myth of a wandering guitar player bucking the system, blind lemon Jefferson, you know, uh, hit, hitting the train, stopping at every little stop with his guitar and his tin can, playing his playing his uh, blues. Um, that's a very powerful myth in America, and people don't want to let go of it. But. Oh, I'll have to say, it's much more complicated than that, Jim. It's there's complexity. <laughs> well, there here. actually is complexity in some things. Yeah. And there's compl not they, complexity uh, in other well, things. Uh, you know, uh, 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 yeah, yeah. Uh, a um, a um, a good analogy is uh, you have the the banjo, which was a um an African instrument that was commercialized production wise um, in the 1840s and 1850s, um, and well, well, how did the hillbillies get this instrument they didn't bring it with them the tennessee hillbillies because it was an african instrument but there are very few slaves free blacks in appalachia circa 1860 to 1900 where the hell did they get the banjo they got the banjo from the touring minstrel shows that penetrated this idea that there's isolated areas where a particular type of uh, music or speech is unaffected by outside forces is just bullshit. Yeah. These people I mean there's probably more uh, of it back then in terms of like harder to get around and traveling, but still you're still right. going to have knew, other influences. They, so. they they knew they knew man, we've got here at Archives in History, we have uh these gorgeous uh paintings done um in the early 1800s of Creek Indians. They're wearing French styled clothes the latest parisian fashions you know to an extent 
you know, even pre-industrial revolution, um, it's globalized. Yeah. Everything was globalized. Trade from everywhere, man. And, and yeah. pe- people knew it. They might have taken it a little uh, shorter time to get there. They knew there were people who who were quote unquote isolated, were tuned in to what was going on, and so the the hillbillies saw. And I speak that lovingly from a being from genetically from a great hillbilly family. Um, they saw these minstrel guys playing the banjo, and they're like, "I want to get one of them." Sometimes they made them, you know. But when they got the banjo, they play some minstrel songs, but they'd also start playing some of the folk songs and ballad songs that they had made up themselves or that they had brought from the mother country, you know, on the banjo, you know, fast forward to the Cecil Sharps and the people looking for authentic Appalachian ballads. These guys on the porch with a banjo, you know, singing Barbara Allen. And they're like, Oh, I found the mother load, the totally authentic, uncorrupted uh, uh, origin of this particular kind of music. You know, and, and and it's the same thing that happened with the country blues players uh, around World War One in the South. They stopped playing the banjo because the most current wave of Mexican immigrants came through with their guitars. They dug the Mexican guitars, so they started playing their songs on the guitar. And a lot of their repertoire and the structure of the blues they learned from these traveling medicine shows, Butler Mays, the original String Beans. Born here in Montgomery, about two blocks away, buried about a mile away. Uh, that you know, they go to the big show, dress up, and go to the big big show. Where here's someone else who dressed up and went to the big show, singing these popular tunes, and they started playing them on the guitar. You know, but then it's, it's outside it's, the show, so then it almost becomes the blues or whatever, right? It, it, or morphs into Appalachia early country folk. stuff or folk stuff, exactly. Yeah, what, what exactly is folk? You know, and yeah. then the other the other thing is, uh, you know, these first wave hillbilly musicians of the twenties, the fiddle players, string bands, you know, uh, just like record collectors looking for blues records in the fifties or sixties would ignore the Bing Crosby records. And uh, the Roy Acuff records that black folks have, you know, always had, you know, and, uh, you know, Howlin' Wolf's, uh, you know, Howlin' Wolf is because he wanted to yodel like Jimmy Rogers. That's really funny. The Howlin' Wolf wolf scream is his uh, failure of he loved Jimmy Rogers. He wanted he would give Chester Burnett wanted to yodel like Jimmy Rogers, just like uh, uh, the worst thing in the world. You know, that's and, uh, hilarious. Yeah, yeah. So, um, uh, but uh, that is kind of interesting because I think it sort of bucks maybe even a lot of blues historians' concept oh, on man. it. So, oh, did that? Lord. I mean, I know we've been talking oh, for a man. while, but whatever. But maybe oh. we can talk a little bit about this. That, so, Ooh. we're a lot of blues people that were kind of the oh. sort of scholarly, nerdy types who were like, "Yo, this Dude. is bullshit. Fuck this." Dude. Well, you know. Uh, <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. I'm sure they were uh. right. Oh, and they still are. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure. Well, so it's Doug, kind of a little bit of a controversial book, though. I, I assume it's like insanely oh, yeah. researched, you know. So it's like, well, you know what they did. Uh, first of all, Doug and Lynn are not academics; they're self-trained. Lynn was from a blue blood family in Virginia, totally enamored of New Orleans jazz. Uh in the n- late 1960s, moved 
to New Orleans, and I forget the original jazz drummer's apartment, Lynn moved in. His wife is the manager at Louisiana Music Factory, by the way. I don't know if you've ever been there in New Orleans. No, I've only, I was only there store. a couple times, once for a Ponderosa Stomp, and then another, yeah. another time I was down there. And um, uh, Lynn was on the road with various uh, Creole Cajun Zydeco bands. Great drummer, great drummer. But he started publishing and researching stuff inspired by Doug, uh, some seminal articles um, on uh, quartet music, uh, African-American tradition, uh, New Orleans jazz, uh, uh, trad jazz, the origins of jazz. And when he came off the road, Bruce Rabin, the director of the Hogan Jazz Archive, hired Lynn. Uh, so for the last 15, 16 years, that Lynn, he just recently retired. Uh, he was working at the Hogan Jazz Archive, researching and publishing, uh, and and also uh, cataloging books every now and then. But Bruce let him research there, and uh, uh, what what Doug and Lynn did, it took him about twenty years. Uh, if you go to Doug's house in Greenbrier, Tennessee, do you know John Seroff that books the bands for se- summers? Summer concerts, uh, Central Park. Summer stage. No, I, yeah. don't, I don't know if I know. John, His name sounds familiar, but. That's Doug's son. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, um, uh, Jim, you know what they did? They spent 25 years doing this. They got a whole. That's amazing. Microfish, or they had facsimiles ran off. They read every edition of every African-American newspaper published in America from after the Civil War to about 1935. That's insane. That's and real. That's their research. And any time they came upon anything that had anything to do with music, they made a note of it. And they uncovered really this whole vaudeville tradition. And then the fact that the the, the vaudeville, because it was upscales and not, it had its own like vaudeville critics, well-known Critics who wrote for the Chicago. Oh, Defender so then the, they could read reviews from back in the day. Yes, bananas. Yes. That's crazy. Yeah, yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, that's some serious yeah, man. research, man. Yeah, that's you some go to serious Doug's digging. house. That's you go crazy. to Doug's house, and in every room in the house, you can't see the walls because it's stacked with facsimile editions of old African American newspapers. Insane. Yeah, that was that's their research. So th- that's uh, to answer your question. I mean, or your comment. Uh, it, it's. Uh, the academic establishment, although Dave Evans at University uh, of of uh, Memphis, uh, you know, he's done tons and tons of of uh, field work and field recordings. Uh, champ knew it, saw the importance of Doug and um, Lynn's work right off, and published. You know, uh, uh, Lynn and Doug were published like in Ameri- the journal American Music. They were published in academic. So they're published in peer-reviewed uh, art, which is yeah, pretty crazy because yeah. they're not coming from that background, you know. Exactly. And the rare independent scholar, but they are not interested in current academic theoretical um, strategies and this kind of thing. So they've been unintentionally, I think, ostracized or ignored. Uh, University of Mississippi Press published all the four books i'll send you the titles um but they're written uh most of the text are quotes from the african-american newspapers uh logistically uh um logically um formed together in chapters saying okay like with butler mays 
born in Montgomery, sang in Montgomery, was hired by, you know, uh, a certain certain uh, traveling medicine show, hopped on, got a vaudeville act together, uh, comedy, uh, you know, a little slapstick, but with these blues tunes, four bar, uh, 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 you know, um, one, four, five blues, you know, right, right, um, right. Tunes and because um, uh, that's like an aspect of the act in a way, you know, you right, have like some right. comedy. Because I mean, Butterbeans and Stoozy, yes. I mean, it's kind of like sticky, but it's funny, yeah. you know. Yeah, I mean, that yeah. the, I mean, like I said, I only know a couple of their songs, though. I found a record of theirs when they were mad old from the late 50s or maybe yeah, early I know what 60s, you're talking about, yeah. which wasn't yeah. as good as obviously the. The twenty, but I was like, wow. I mean, it was it was cheap too. I think I probably got it at the FMU fair. But I'm like, I have to buy wow. this, you yeah. know, just just to have it, whatever. Yeah. But, um, but the the track I was talking about before was from you know Stash Records or one of those classic, uh, you know, Baby Peacock. But it was uh, R. Crumb yeah. did the cover art. Yeah, and it's yeah. called. Um, it was sort of like all sexy blues tunes. It's called Please Warm My Wiener. Yeah, so yeah. it's like because yeah. that's one of the tunes, and yeah, Butterbean and Susie's tune. There's some fun, that is an amazing comp. I, I got that in a collection when I was like 19. I got a bunch of old, yeah, yeah, and it kind of blew yeah. me away, you know. But yeah, but the whole comp is hilarious because it's like some like X rated shit, but of course, yeah, it's like the 20s or early 30s or whatever, so they can't really, you know, it's like pg-13 but it's nasty as fuck in fact Buzz- yeah. butterbeans and Susie yeah, song yeah. it's like elevator mama switchboard pop oh no it's like elevator papa switchboard mama but the whole thing is they're ragging on each other that you know they can't fuck anymore or they can't really like <laughs> you won't do shit for me well yeah. every time i want to go up you going down you know it's like it's just like cutting cutting shit and there's yeah. something about that kind of like PG-13 no kind of like yeah. nastiness where they couldn't really go R-rated, yeah. but it's kind of almost nastier in a way because, you know. Yeah, I agree. Like, well, you have to It's kind of hilarious, so. you know. It's yeah. like, and then, of course, he's ripping on her like, well, your receiver don't work no more. Yeah. But that's kind of oh, crazy. Man. But, yeah, that's that's Love funny it. that you mentioned that, that then yeah. what's kind of crazy, I think, about this research is the pre-recording is, like, who influenced them? How do you even find out about those people in the first place? So that's right. That's some serious research. That's crazy, man. Well, you know, uh, like one of the – and they'll never be found, but um, uh, uh, Howard Odom – was a folklorist who taught at University of North Carolina um, in the nineteen aughts and teens, and he became interested in the local acoustic blues players. But he was only interested in the texts because he was like a lot of folklorists. He was he was an English major, you know, and um, I don't think there was any folklore departments yet. Uh, in any schools formally what year is but this? he he this is like 1914 and 1915 odom made anywhere from 28 to 50 wax cylinder recordings of acoustic blues players in north carolina wild but he junked the recordings after he transcribed the lyrics he wasn't oh, interested in the music. Oh my God! What? Oh the yeah. Fuck. Yeah, it's kind of like oh, the Buddy Bolden. My God. Did Buddy Bolden make a record? Uh, you know. Wow. Uh, 
we, we don't know, but probably not. But they were Howard Odom, uh, you know, uh, somebody got anyway, they were wax recording. So they, 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 they've, they've self-destructed if they're yeah. any, even, yeah, even yeah, if yeah. they were in a climate controlled area. Yeah. But anyway, we have the texts that, and they're all, you know, AAB, uh, four bar blues, you know, and, uh, this was in, um, North Carolina before, right before world war one. So, um, uh, and a lot of these, you know, it's another thing, uh, Doug and Lynn, it's amazing for them because, you know, blue songs and wandering verses and uh, songs that'll have bits and pieces of four or five different sources, a Tin Pan Alley song, an old blues song, you know, a couple of lines from a hymn even. And 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 Doug and Lynn would hear a line from a record, a commercial record in the 30s, you know, like some of the later uh, blues guys like um, uh, Petway or uh, uh, McClellan, Tommy McClellan. Uh, that was kind of a later post Robert Johnson acoustic blues player. Okay. It kind of went electric a little bit. And um, uh, I said, Oh yeah, that song, it has a different title, but what that is, is, is it's an amalgamation of these two different songs that since he was from St. Louis, he probably learned from these two vaudeville circuits or medicine shows. Oh, so they know? were tracing the lyrics from yeah. this and yeah, they, kind they, of like they, see, they, see the continuation. Right, wow. That's right. wild. Yeah. That's wild, and it, man. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, anyway. ragtime. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. It's crazy. You know, uh, but it's, it's very, these, these books are, are slowly being appreciated like they, yeah, I got to peep them, man. Thanks for yeah, the, well, the, 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 I'm going to definitely peep those books. They look amazing. Well, it, it's, it's, um, it's just like you said, um, uh, the myths and the beliefs of uh, all this blue scholarship of that's been done about the uh, single gunslinging blues singer. It's going to die hard, man. That's crazy. It's, it's real. But, you know, R. Crumb's a big Doug and Lynn fan. I mean, he got he, R. Crumb understood it right away. He yeah. goes, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I was wondering about this. Yes. You know, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, because, you know, he, I mean, uh, on that documentary, he's he had that, like, what is it, that Geechee Wild? He has, like, some, oh, like, Oh, man, what a crazy, record. Yeah, that record is tough. I remember when oh, that, that soundtrack came out, blues. and that was on the, uh, I remember playing that my, in the new, when it was in the new at FMU, because that is. Uh, the last kind words <laughs> my daddy said. That's a, that's a haunting. 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 Yeah. yeah, man. Uh, well, we should Texas, probably. Texas record. Oh, really? Texas record, yeah. Nice, man. We could talk. We could just keep talking, but uh, it has been a while, so I, I don't want to like, uh, you know. We, we, could, need... we, could do a vol- we could do a part part two or whatever if you see fit. I'm game. Yeah, that sounds uh-huh. good, dude. You're the man. I mean, I'm a huge uh-huh. fan, and I still want to visit you one of oh, these yeah, fucking likewise, years. Man. You know, I want to get down there and visit you, but yeah. uh, absolute pleasure, man. Thank you so much for doing uh, likewise. this. Likewise. No, thanks for having me, man. To hear Kevin Nutt's exclusive Stark Reality playlist of radio favorites and a short set recorded live at the Leroy Lounge, check out episode 28 of Stark Reality playlists on Apple and wherever you get your podcasts. Also on Mixcloud and live and direct on jasoncharles.net podcast network music shows. Subscribe and listen to previous Stark Reality interviews on Apple and wherever you get your podcasts 
and you can also subscribe and listen to the exclusive music mixes from our guests on Stark Reality playlists, also on Apple and wherever you get your podcasts. You've been listening to Small Changes, Stark Reality on jasoncharles.net. jasoncharles.net Deep talk, deep sounds. That was so deep.